syllabus journal report. I'm going to do another entry here. This one's a little bit of a heavy lift. We've been building up all of our background information and developing our historical knowledge so that we could get to this point. Then we needed to look through the news, search through the internet and find those details and those little bits of information that can help to elucidate the background the obscure background history that's hard to put together. We're going to do that today. We need to take a look at some of the inner workings of the banking industry that go back centuries. We need to take a look at the, the empire of the city, the city of London. Some of the inner workings, we need to really get that exposed. Thanks for coming back again, Syllabus Journal. We're here to keep it up. In these discussions, we are unrestrained in our criticism of those aspects of history which are most carefully curated so that the larger collective struggle is expunged out of the history textbooks. And what students do not learn in school is precisely the subject matter which is most difficult for Americans to comprehend. The war against the true and accurate recounting of history is the battlefield taking place within academia and college campuses that has become a protracted conflict waged over the hyper-political use of language. The control over the popular vernacular, pop culture, the manipulation of dictionary definitions, the cultural Marxism that acts like a contagious fanaticism is engineered on a macro level by the industrial scale censorship of technocrats and that rising digital tyranny that we see there in Silicon Valley. Keep in mind that Google and Apple and dozens of other colossal tech companies are operating in China using their technology against the Chinese people on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party. So in, in the process of serving their masters in the CCP and kowtowing to them, they have to make sure that they use the, the implements of their technology to corral and cage in and, and, and basically imprison in a technotronic prison the Chinese people. And they're aiming their technological advances at the end users and allowing their applications and their devices to be used to conduct mass surveillance and the hyper-oppression of all Chinese dissidents and people of faith in mainland China, and their technology and massive digital spying mechanism is a service that these tech companies offer to the CCP. Just as it is fully established that the Chinese military is stealing whole technology industries and consolidating the mining of essential minerals all around the world, the vast resources of the Arctic are being targeted by China, while even Russia isn't prepared to fully deploy the necessary equipment to get at these precious assets. And obviously the United States is not, under Biden is not prepared to do anything but sit there and, and with dementia. So this is a race for the natural resources in the ground. It's a race in the military buildup of the islands in the South China Sea. And it's a race to control and dominate militarized space. As soon as a foreign power has the ability to knock out our satellites, then our economy and our military advantages are gone. And whether we realize it or not, today we are in an existential fight for the future. It's a battle that we might not want to accept, and yet is upon us nonetheless. And it, it is in this serious tone that we must advance our discussions in these episodes. We must not allow ourselves to be distracted by the spiraling chaos of national politics within America, which is using all the organs of the media and the internet to 
pit neo-Marxist Antifa radicals against the military-industrial complex, which is pronounced by the hyper-nationalism, which is instigated by the radical right. And it is in this Hegelian dialectic process between the right and left paradigm that the American people are swept up in the program of conflict and cannot see that the American Republic itself and our history are being erased in the process. This variety of asymmetrical and clandestine information warfare is conducted as the communist left attempts to fully control the means of cultural production. So these aren't just the industries, but these are the the means of of people being within polite society and uh, the controlling Oprah, just controlling the concept, the the the, the popular relevant viewpoint, an acceptable reality that everyone's going to accept. So you can see that on the right and the left, they may be arguing about a lot of things, but they all accept this idea about the the virus, the COVID lockdowns, the vaccines. All these things are considered just totally acceptable and, and normal aspects of our lives, and they shouldn't be questioned. But I have a, a lot of suspicion about some of these these vaccines, and th- these are suspicions you're not allowed to harbor. These are ideas. These are questions you're not allowed to ask. You're just supposed to accept that medicine doctors made this vaccine for you, and you know don't worry about the whole idea of gene therapy. Just put it out of your mind and don't question because Oprah and Biden and Trump and everyone said these vaccines are good for you. Yeah. And so it's just something that a lot of people are going to be very hesitant to accept because the world has been totally in a state of upheaval and the the politics in Washington is chaotic. We were like in a semi state of martial law and there the whole psychological op of the Q QAnon thing, you know, the whole idea that the Antifa is still running around attacking um, federal buildings in Portland. There's no arrests. I mean, the, the whole, condition of the of America is that it's in the process of collapsing in on itself and I don't think people are are just going to jump out there and accept a lot of these presuppositions that everything's fine these vaccines are good for you when um, if you look at history you can see that many times what is being offered to the public is a deception and a way to you know when you when you recognize that Bill Gates is behind it it could just be an issue of population control you know we're just small people who live in our homes and work paycheck to paycheck so how would we expect to survive if we just take handout vaccines that are being handed out by Obama and Bill Gates. doesn't seem like a, a smart move to make if you're trying to survive. And so this kind of conflict that we're being drawn into in America has no easy remedy. And this work is so necessary for us to do in order to be well-informed and to be well-acquainted with the most complex and difficult issues that face us as a free nation, a nation of citizens responsible for actions and policies of our government. And as a nation of citizens, we are responsible for the actions and policies of our government. And in this way, we are all senators and judges and soldiers charged with the defense and the protection of our homes and our neighbors' homes and our, and our states where we live. In this way, we are united as, great, as a great American nation. And we must rekindle the Reformation and the American Revolution, the fight for independence that has made the audacity of the American Declaration of Independence so integral in the history of the world and such a beacon of truth the world has never seen for thousands of years. There's been no republic like this. And often we have been critical and penetrating in our thesis and our exegesis of the details and events of our American history. And that is necessary because the silhouette of philosophy and the doctrine of American independence will permanently frame the issues and highlight the major dilemmas of conscience that so re- 
revolted and caused the colonists to, to kick against the tyranny of Europe, the tyranny of the papacy and its horrific inquisitions, the autocratic violence evinced through the monarchs, princes of Europe by the prelates and pontiffs of Rome, who could turn the subjects of a realm against their king, they could use a foreign monarch to wage war, and in the case of the colonies, King George III used mercenaries in the form of Hessian soldiers that were hired out from the estate of Hesse-Cassel, and these were bankrolled by the Rothschild banking enterprise, which was very new at the time. And these Hessian soldiers were sent to pillage, burn, and rape the colonists, who were, after all, mere Anabaptists and Presbyterians and Calvinists and indentured servants, and they were all Protestants considered to be worthless heretics, not even protected by the king's law in this remote colony of England. It should be no surprise to us that the Americans, though, that the Americans would throw off the abuses and slavery of that despotic crown, and it should not surprise us that George Washington and his men took their cannons and crossed the Delaware at night in the freezing cold in order to attack the Redcoat Army at Christmas, which was the most well-known and popular Roman holiday, a pagan Roman holiday that the Protestant patriots would never be bothered to try to practice, and it was considered to be a sacrilege. But in modern America today, the idea of being a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Lutheran or being a Protestant or a Bible believer and separating from the religion of Rome is unknown because the people in America today they're just so incredibly ignorant about the subject matter or what the fight was or what the differences are and they're slowly being merged back into the syncretic system the, the system of syncretism that Rome uses to unite politically civilly with holidays religiously in all ways binding the conscience and the souls of men who will no longer read their Bible and you people out there with your Christmas trees have you read your Bible? no you haven't so you're being brought back to Rome through the, the candy and the incense and the, the pretty lights and the tinsel the holiday glimmer the Christmas magic is bringing you back into submission religiously, politically, and soon it will militarily also. And that's the consequences. That's what happens when, if you look at the Bible, the Bible that you haven't been reading, you can see that when the people of Israel began to wander away from the Lord and worship Babylonian gods, that soon the king of Babylon, that great empire, came down with its armies and defeated them. So their spiritual fornication, their spiritual betrayal ended with the actual reality of the military conquest of that of those gods over them. So the spiritual conquest took place before the military conquest. That's what's happening in America. These are the wider subjects we have to cover, and it is this larger scale and inframing of world history that needs to be clarified. We are looking at the rise of advanced military technology in the hands of communist regime in China, which has been enslaving and murdering the Chinese people, building a trading block with Russia and South America, and has now signed a huge, unbelievably enormous trade deal with Europe, with the European Union. So the EU is in too. With China, despite all this human rights tort uh, abuses, the selling of body parts from people who were who've been basically murdered for their body parts by this criminal regime in China, the Uyghur Muslims who are just being worked to death in camps, none of this seems to bother the European Union. And this deal with the European Union has followed the initial Concord Act signed with the Pope, which allows the Vatican to control the bishops and decide who will be in charge there in the church in China. And that was in 2018 when that process started. Now the EU deal with China signals a massive alliance of America's enemies into an economic and military confederation. Globalism apparently does not require any participation from America, and we can now clearly see that the southern border is being invaded by millions of unknown foreigners, and the collapse of the Federal Reserve note is now becoming exponential. It is this environment of tremendous political and economic pressure that the citizens of America must quickly take away all this partisan delusions and this infighting, this inner scene, political conflict, 
and acquire the full picture of America's destiny. The question of who we have become so indebted to economically is now coming into view. Long ago, as a, as a result of the Great Depression, in, in 1929, when it began, bankers seized all the gold and silver coins, and thereafter, they issued coins out of the Federal Reserve made out of nickel-plated pot metal and issued banknotes with no value to back them. So the intrinsic value of gold and silver that was backing our money was gone. And these debt notes that started to pile up in the 30s represented money borrowed by Congress on behalf of the American people from a foreign banking corporation, a private foreign banking corporation. In this episode, we begin to peel back the layers of nuance and sovereign immunity and political obscurity, which shields the Class A stockholders of America's national debt, which ties back to the Bank of London. And this whole subject is a very complex and convoluted foray into the discussion, which is considered anathema by many. And it's a paradigm, and a paradigm that is unacceptable within the prevailing narrative and is difficult for us to tease out. So in order to get to that, we just I did, we need we need to listen to a little clip from the War Room, which is Steve Bannon's show, and he's going to touch on the, the issue of the City of London, and that's where we're trying to go. Just want you made a comment before we bring in Rudy Giuliani, uh, Doctor Mosher or Stephen. You you made a great comment about people don't understand how they look at human nature. The Chinese Communist Party, the biggest victims are the innocent, hardworking Chinese people, the people you saw in that village where you work, the people I've gotten to know, Lao Beijing, Old Hundred Names, which is basically the average guy in China, the deplorables. Talk about the mentality and how it was personified this week in Alaska, sir. Well, the Chinese Communist Party has absolute disdain for human life. I mean, think about the human rape attacks in the Korean War. Think about the fact Mao said he's not afraid of nuclear war. If we lose 300 million people, our women will make it up in a generation. Uh, think about the fact that they uh, kill babies at birth, uh, that they abort women at nine months pregnancy. Think about the fact that they harvest uh, organs from prisoners and sell them at a profit on the international market. Uh, all of these things indicate one thing, and they indicate a political machine that, that treats human life like uh, the masses, like a herd of animals, to be expended whenever it enhances their power. There's absolute disdain for, for human life, for other human beings. If you have power in China, uh, you're on the top of the mountain. If you don't, uh, you can be used and disposed of uh, at will. And, and that was on full display in Alaska. I was amazed. For the first time, uh, the Chinese officials in Alaska treated us uh, the way they treat their own people, treated us the way they've been treating the Australians for the last two years, for example. Uh, last year, they said the Australians were like gum stuck to the bottom of their shoes. Occasionally, you have to, to, to get rid of it. it. They're gum stuck to the bottom of your shoes. That's a whole people the Australians referred to by the Chinese Communist Party that way. They wouldn't have dared under the Trump administration uh, with Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, to treat us this way. The arrogance came through, the condescension came through, the demands came through, uh, and the translation was really bad, Steve, because at, at one point they said, you're in no position to lecture us. Uh, it didn't, I think the translation was, you don't have qualifications to talk to us. That wasn't it at all. If you listen to the tone, the tone was one of absolute arrogance, talking down to Secretary of State Anthony Blinken as if he were a representative of a lesser people from the periphery talking to a, a high Chinese imperial official. Uh, this arrogance, this wolf warrior diplomacy, I think, shows the world, it should show the world and should show the United States, that these people only respect strength. If people, they do not yeah. respect weakness. If people in this audience don't think that's going to have a direct impact on her life, you're kidding yourself. On your community, on your life, on your children's life. The Chinese Communist Party, the biggest victims are the Chinese people. They do not respect life. This is a transnational criminal organization. And here's the pro problem with it. Biden should have recalled, Blinken is a clerk, and, and Sullivan's a messenger boy. They should have been recalled immediately from Alaska and come back. Never, ever should the United States be lectured 
by a criminal organization. And by the way, the way it's playing in CCP, they're talking about the weakness of America, right? They're driving, as I've warned for years, you've got to confront them on the cyber war and the information war and the economic war, which is a hot war, not a cold war, because they're in business with Wall Street, the city of London, the global corporations, and the Chamber of Commerce. They're in business with all these guys. So right there you can see that Steve Bannon on the show, he's saying the quiet part out loud because he's discussing the economic backing and the internationalist support that the Chinese Communist Party is getting. And a lot of these countries are pretending, uh, or, you know, in the international the G8 summit and the international arena, they're, they're, they're mouthing the words um, of protestation against Chinese human rights abuses and their genocide against Uyghurs and all the, the prison camps that are holding all these Christians. And But on the other side of it, they're making huge economic deals and you have to recognize that the CCP, the China, controls a seat on the United Nations and they're in the World Health Organization. They're a, a signatory to many international treaties and they're using all of the leverage that they have at their disposal right now. And Steve Bannon's War Room show has, like, he always likes to boast that it's going upward of 65 million, I think, uh, downloads on his podcast and um, he is worth a maybe 100 mil. He, he's been around the world. Like, his opinion and and the words that he's using to discuss these issues are something that I'm trying to, to pay attention to here because he's talking about the Chamber of Commerce, global corporations, and the City of London. And so the City of London is a separate place, a separate district from London proper, which is the actual capital city there of the UK. But the secret inner city of uh, the, the square mile, the City of London, the banking square mile, is the, the thing that he's talking about there. So I'm going to go ahead and just replay it a little bit just to let him finish up his point that he's making there. Party, the biggest victims are the Chinese people. They do not respect life. This is a transnational criminal organization. And here's the pro problem with it. Biden should have called Blinken is a clerk and, and Sullivan's a messenger boy. They should have been recalled immediately from Alaska and come back. Never, ever should the United States be lectured by a criminal organization. And by the way, the way it's playing in CCP, they're talking about the weakness of America, right? They're driving, as I've warned for years, you got to confront them on the cyber war and the information war and the economic war, which is a hot war, not a cold war, because they're in business with Wall Street, the city of London, the global corporations, and the Chamber of Commerce. They're in business with all these guys, right? That, that, that cover up for them all the time. This is this the brutality on the Chinese people, it, the victimization of the Chinese people. That's how they care about people throughout the world. And this is going to be a problem. And we are heading, as sure as night follows day, we are heading towards, as I've warned about for years, a kinetic conflict in either Taiwan or the South China Sea. And it is coming. So we'll just leave it at that. And uh, I'll put the link. So if you want to go back and check out that entire episode, you can see. But he is really calling out now that the, the cards are all down and people's their ideological frames are becoming more and more exposed. You can see that the Obama-Biden administration, especially Kamala Harris, linked with the laptop guy. What was he? The crackhead with the hookers. He knocked up the strippers. Hunter Biden. He was connected with uh, Kamala Harris. And uh, before... Uh, Biden was running for president and he was making she was involved in a lot of the transactions and the deals that he was making over there in uh, in the Ukraine situation and also with, with China where he apparently Hunter Biden got handed a billion dollars by the Chinese Communist Party so these issues are now all going to come into play now because our allegiances are going to become tested and something I mean, Steve Biden he might be a right wing kind of radical kind of guy but he's an American and he's going to just call these things out from his point of view his vantage point he can see that this global situation 
administration is arraigned in such a way that the Chinese Communist Party is being built up and financed by Wall Street, globalist corporations, the city of London. And these are things that are demonstrably true. And obviously you can see that the CCP got this Concord out with the Vatican, and now they're getting this huge trade deal with the European Union. And the Brexit, the British can say, hey, we're with you, America. We want to break away from this European Union, but they haven't broken away. And apparently they're still involved with the huge tra trade deal. They're mouthing the words that they have problems with the human, right human rights abuses of the CCP, but they're going forward. And this is really a decoupling from America, because America has really always been the odd man out. I think that the, um, the CCP can work with Amazon and uh, Apple and some of these huge corporations, um, and they can work with the Vatican, and just not with America, because America has this root of human uh, liberty, this root of um, laws that protect human life, this kind of consciousness that, um, that we're working with over here that doesn't allow for uh, Falun Gong practitioners to be gassed to death and then have their body parts taken out and sold on the black market and uh, their organs harvested while they were just yet living people. I mean, these are the kind of sins or a gross, enormous abuses or perverse evils that we can't accept. And we're, you know, we're apparently the EU and some of these other countries, Australia is is resisting and some of these countries in the South China Sea and, and, and Taiwan and Vietnam are, are really bolstering their military defensively against China, but at the same time, as Biden has just melted away any resistance from the West to the their their aggression, all these countries are enormously destabilized. There's enormous weakness in the region right now. There's a vacuum, a power vacuum, and weakness is very provocative. So these countries all around the area in the, the in the Sea of Japan, all around the South South China Sea, all these nations around the in the area, Malaysia, all these countries are now terribly endangered because they've been working with America to stand up against CCP aggression and now the next three years are going to be devastating and catastrophic you know and it looks like Kamala Harris is taking over it's amazing I can't believe what a downfall America is experiencing but we have to really get back to the subject matter where we're talking about the city of London and we're talking about Steve Banner just bringing up the subject just just kind of including that detail necessary detail in the discussion and bringing up the whole idea of well, what is the city of London and what's going on with that? So that's what our discussion is going to be about. So I'll try to get right to it. And we have another interesting clip. And again, I got to like preface this and I got to have my little disclaimer where I point out that I don't agree with all these speakers. I don't always agree with Steve Bannon. I don't agree with all the, the conclusions that these guys are coming up to with their research. What I'm getting at is that in their historical research, in their, their discussion of the facts of history, they're getting to the point in history where they're talking about certain details, certain aspects of, of history and, and, and banking and international corporations and all these these larger, complex, and, and, and intricate topics. Ultimately, as we go through these episodes, we have no choice but to look at the tenuous threads of direct financial support by Wall Street and a lot of these guys who, who initiated in the Skull and Bones in Yale ended up being high-ranking Knights of Malta in these banking positions. And all the history is right there. And so during the 1930s and the 1940s, you can see that the Wall Street supported Hitler. But if you go back to 1910, there was direct financial support for the collapse of the Russian Tsar by communist street provocateurs and this was a gold investment by Wall Street bankers and, and the correlating massive loans that would be put for Hitler and for Stalin and for Hitler uh, there were these uh, these loans, these massive loans and fi this financing throughout the war was introduced by intermediaries like Halmar Schacht and the Thiessen family and Franz van Poppen was, was the vice chancellor right under Hitler, his vice chancellor and he was also a high level Knight of Malta. And these are just facts of history you can look up yourself. So 
the internationalist support of radical guerrillas and extremist Islamists and communist anarchists is a furtherance of asymmetrical warfare. And so the financing and arming of these uh, radical incendiary groups produces effective military assets directed against the enemies of the international apparatus. And so this is where you're going to get into the world of espionage and the world of clandestine organizations. And just as we saw in this past presidential election, the full spectrum and magnitude of the neo-corporatists, the neo-fascists, as a totalitarian control was exercised through social media, popular culture, and in the banking industries, as, as these Delitos, that's what they were calling them on, on social media, the Delitos, the cancel culture, have begun to censor, dox, deplatform, and freeze the accounts of any target with high enough social standing and a high enough position within society to make an example out of them. So the overt ideological tyranny of the leftist program now requires absolute capitulation to its machine propaganda. So you have to go along with it and participate with it and go to your white guilt seminars and all this. And the pushback that Trump offered really was half-hearted or was symbolic or was it was Trump a false flag? I mean, these are the kind of things that people are thinking. Was he really a Republican or did he just represent the Republican position and let it end up in a insurrection? So, I mean, that's Trump is out there right now. I mean, he, he still has to be content with and he's still controlling the Republican Party virtually. So in this in this discussion of banking, our whole the whole question here of the Crown Temple comes into play. So we're going to go back to 1185 and the the chancel. I think it was in 1245, the inner and the middle temple. And these are all aspects of the banking establishment that has existed in London from before the time of English, the development of, of British of London as a city. So what it means is that the actual position of the city of London where it's settled there is a settlement that has had sovereignty and political immunity for many centuries because it was founded during the time of Rome. So this is before England existed, before Britain as the British Empire rose and became a, a mighty power, a naval power. The fact is, is that long ago, Londinium was an outpost of the Roman Empire. And so that sovereignty and that that power, that an independence that that inner city has established for itself has continued on. So there's many things to be said about it, and I'm hardly an expert. I'm just really trying to describe the content of where we're going to go. So let's listen to this next clip here, and this is the investigative journal, and he's going to have a little discussion on this subject. And like I said, we don't always agree with every of all these different writers and authors and thinkers, but we're just trying to flesh out these concepts and develop an understanding of these very obscure background issues within history that people very often are never exposed to. So in short, in the investigative journal, he's going to discuss the obelisks that are present in Washington, D.C. and in London, the city of London, which is the square mile, the inner city, and which we'll elaborate on, and Vatican City, which is the sovereign Vatican City, which is inside of Rome. So it's a sovereign independent state, which is actually a country which exists within inside of Rome. And so it is with the city of London. The city of London, the old city, is the square mile, the banking district that has its own sovereignty, its own rules and its own laws. And that sovereign district exists with inside London, the capital of England. So the same thing exists in Washington, D.C. The District of Columbia, this is a separate sovereign district and the whole area is segregated and it is a different jurisdiction than the actual United States itself. So these are issues of sovereign immunity and national sovereignty and issues of old admiralty law and civil Roman law, which go back and predate the, the U.K. and the United States and even the uh, the Republic of Italy today. 
And so we're getting into the question of the actual sovereign power and authority that rests within the inner city of London. And we have to discuss questions regarding the, the inner temple and the middle temple and the crown temple. And the crown temple is a fascinating subject we have to get into. And we really need to we'll go ahead and listen to the clips of the investigative journal because he's really going to spell out some of the terms and some of the, the jargon. And we do really need to kind of expand our lexicon at this point and our understanding of what these what the vernacular is. And so within in the city of London is Temple Church. And this is the old Templar, uh, the church of the, the temple. This was a, uh, the Templars were, the Knight Templars were the, uh, the Knights of the Temple of Solomon. And they date back quite a few centuries. And so that's really what we're going to be discussing. So let's go ahead and listen to this clip here. Obelisks. Okay, uh, the king and kings erected Benbens and Ray in Ra's honor so that by 1300 BC the city was full of them. The Roman author Pliny wrote about this city of An, where kings entered into a kind of rivalry in the form, the forming elongated blocks of stone known as obelisks and consecrated them to the divinity of the sun. In our phallic heritage, we are told that all pillars or columns originally had a phallic significance and were therefore considered sacred. Are they still sacred today in the three places I mentioned? I believe so. Pan, the goat god and god of sensuality, was often represented as an obelisk. A former witch writes, the obelisk is a long, pointed, four-sided shaft, the uppermost portion of which forms a pyramid. The word obelisk literally means bowel shaft, or bowel's organ, or Osiris's organ of reproduction. To understand just why the obelisk is so important to the people that display them today, ones in, you know, at the Vatican, and Washington, and in London, one has to understand the Masonic version of Egyptian mythology behind all these rituals, which I might add the Vatican is a part of. To Freemasons and the Vatican groping for mystic enlightenment in the 1800s, the obelisk was the only architectural symbol of Osiris still in existence, and it's existing right here today. And if some Masonic historians claim, like Hiram of Biff is really Osiris reborn, there could be no greater proof of Masonic and Vatican ascendancy because they are all together, the Freemasons and the, and the, the Vatican. In the modern world, then Egyptian obelisks thrust by Masons into the heart of the West's great cities. These would also symbolize Boaz and Joachim, the twin pillars. Wow. Twin Towers coming down. Interesting. Which Masons claim were built in front of Solomon's Temple, an imitation of two obelisks at the entrance of the Egyptian temples. Okay, so there is a little bit of historical information regarding, regarding the obelisks. Now, I said I would make a connection. The Trinity of Global Evil names worship Isis through the obelisks that you see in Washington, in Rome, and in London. Now, it's, it's a fast, it's easy to figure out. You know, since 9-11 went down, the twin temples, and we go into Iraq with Al-Qaeda, a terrorist organization created by them. Now they have the big one. 
and they are very sign and symbol oriented. So they pick the name ISIS. They're telling each other, now we got these guys by the you-know-what. That's how I know they've created this organization and how they have created chaos and they've created terrorism and created terrorism and wars throughout the centuries. And they all work together. Now, let's look a little closer at this trinity of evil that exists today. There are three cities that you got to look at across the planet that share striking similarities and play a critical role in the global governmental system we have. The three city-states, along with the role they serve, is as follows. City of London, known for its finance. Washington, D.C., known for its military. That's what we're good at in America, bombing people. We're the Roman Empire, the military... Rome's legions today, and Vatican City having to do with the spiritual or religion. Put all those together, and they got you, don't they? And their symbols tell you that. The aforementioned city-states listed above are all sovereign. Did you know that? They don't have anything to do with the United States or London, the city of London or England, or the Vatican has nothing to do with Italy. They're all sovereign within another country. Now, in other words, the city of London, that is a square mile within Greater London, is not technically part of Greater London or England. Just as Vatican City is not a part of Rome or Italy, it's the size of a football field. And likewise, Washington, D.C., did you know your own capital is not a part of the United States that it controls, which makes us foreigners, right? Foreign terrorists. These sovereign corporate entities have their own laws and their own identities. They also have their own flag. Seen below, you know, I can show you that the flag of Washington, D.C., note the three stars representing the trinity of these three cities, also known as the empire of the cities. There is also a high esoteric significance of the number three. Washington, D.C. was established as a city-state in 1871 with the Passage Act of 1871, which officially established the United States as a corporation under the rule of Washington, which itself is subservient to the city of London. Corporations are run by presidents, which is why we call the person perceived to hold the highest seat of power in the land the president. Being more than a figurehead for the central bankers and a trans- transnational corporation of which themselves are controlled by high ecclesiastic Vatican Freemasonry that really control this country and they ultimately control all the shots going on in the world. Washington, D.C. operates under a system of Roman law, remember that, and outside of the limitations established by the Constitution. Therefore, it should not be a surprise that the name Capitol Hill derives from the Capitoline Hill, which was the seat of government for the Roman Empire. If you look at the wall behind the podium in the House of Representatives, you will notice that on either side of the U.S. flag is a depiction of bundles of sticks tied together with an axe. These are called fasci, hence the root word of fascism. This was the symbol of fascism in the Roman Empire, and is the symbol that you live under. It was under the Nazis and still is today. It is not a coincidence that these symbols are featured in the Hall of Congress.
And the fact is that the United States Corporation is controlled from the City of London by the Crown. Revolutionary War, which was instigated not by what you believe, it was instigated and thought up and meant much of it was planned by Lorenzo Ricci, a Jesuit general from Rome. <laughs> Go back to some of my old shows to get that. Fact is, we're still controlled by London, which is not the British monarchy as we believe, but rather the private corporation that is in the inner city of London. Bankers, that's why we talk about the bankers, and then we're controlled by the spiritual in Rome. That square mile in London, this is the London I'm talking about, which is not a part of England. This square mile that makes up the center of Greater London has its own mayors, its own court, its own laws, its own flag, police force, a newspaper, just like the Vatican. It is the heart of the global financial system. Now, Vatican City, I'm looking at their Corporation of London, the, the insignia. It's amazing. It's got a Knights Templar shield, cross. Vatican City also has its own mayor called the Governatore Arte. Laws, flags, postal service, newspaper, radio, television station, and even its own prison. Another thing these three cities have in common are their own obelisks. The connection. This is the symbolic of the Egyptian sun god Ra and Osiris and Isis. And it's the ancient symbol of male energy and generation. Vatican obelisk. You can see it right there. I, I'm looking at it right now because I walked by it many, many times without knowing what the heck it was. And saying, boy, isn't that thing weird to be here? Now they'll tell you they do it for posterity's sake. It was a gift. But you don't do that in a Christian area. It is not. It is a representation of the temple to the sun god behind it, which is St. Peter's. Now the circle at the base of this obelisk that I walk through represents a female vagina and thus male-female duality. Also notice the lines extending from the circle forming a union jack. That's what you see there in the Vatican. As seen on the British flag. The union jack, they'll tell you, is the... What, the uh, the Scotland and uh, England mixing together or something. No. There's the Union Jack right there. The London Obelisk, a.k.a. Cleopatra's Needle. Where's that located? I didn't get to the... Uh, it's located on the banks of the River Thames. Let me see how much time we got here. I got about six minutes. This obelisk was transported to London and erected in 1878 under the reign of Queen Victoria. The obelisk stood in the Egyptian city of On, or Heliopolis, city of Sun. The Knights Templars' land extended to the area of the Thames, where Templars had their own docks. Either side of the obelisk is surrounded by a sphinx, also symbolism dating back to the ancient world. So that's who they worship. Then we come to our own Washington obelisk, a.k.a. the Washington Monument, standing at 555 feet tall. Why does Hollywood always use 555? Five, five, five? Interesting. 
Washington Monument is the tallest obelisk in the world. We're also the tallest standing structure in Washington, D.C. The monument's cornerstone, a 12-ton slab of marble, was donated by the Grand Lodge of Freemasons. Like the Vatican obelisk, the Washington Monument, too, is surrounded by a circle denoting the female, right? The reflecting pool in front of the monument signifies the ancient Masonic capitalistic dictum. As above, so goes below. So why are these three cities ultimately connected? How? Now I'm going to go to a gentleman by the name of, let's see here, Mr. Matthew D. Jarvey, who will give us an insight into this, who's helping us along with all this information. Thank you, Daniel. So how are these cities ultimately collected, asks Daniel Darby. We must first go back to the Knights Templar and their initial 200-year reign of power. Yep, the Vatican's there, folks. The Knights Templar were first called the poor fellow soldiers of Christ and the Temple of Solomon. This is a blatantly misleading title considering the immense wealth and power of the Templars who operated 9,000 manors across Europe and owned all of the mills and markets. It was the Templars that issued the first paper money for public use in Europe, establishing the fiat banking system. And the Vatican was involved here. They know what they're doing. In England, the Templars established their headquarters at London Temple, which still exists today and is called the Temple Bar. This is located in the city of London. Between Fleet Street and Victoria Embankment, the aforementioned crown, to be exact, is the Knights Templars Church, also known as Crown Temple. It is the Crown Temple that controls the legal court system of the U.S., Canada, and many other countries. All bar associations are directly linked to the international bar association and the inns of courts at the Crown Temple in the city of London, all having connection back to Rome. Oh, isn't this fun? Anytime you hear somebody refer to the Bar Association, you know, this is interesting because I have a law degree. They are, imagine if I got in it. Oh my God. Would they disbar me? They are talking about a British Masonic system that has nothing to do with the country's sovereignty or the constitutional rights of the people. This is why when you go to court in the U.S., you see the flag, U.S. flag with a gold fringe denoting international rule. The government of the United States, Canada, and Britain are all subsidiaries of the Crown, as is the Federal Reserve in the U.S. The ruling monarch in England is also subordinate to the Crown, and remember, uh, subordinate to, to Rome as well, and remember when the Prime Minister, uh, what was his name, he became a Roman Catholic. You know who I'm talking about. But anyway, this is why when you go to court, you see the flag, like I said, with gold fringe. Now, the global financial and legal system is controlled from the city of London, and uh, they are they are beholden to Rome. The global financial and the square mile making of the center of London is the global seat of power, at least the visible level. Now, that's what we're dealing with here. That's why you see all this injustice going on in our court system, because it is not our court system. We are foreigners to it, being might as well have a court of inquisition as they do in Rome and these courts that we have here are nothing more than secular courts of inquisition when it gets to important issues oh you know you may get some justice if you got a DUI or some small case but when it gets to important issues there is no justice I'm connecting the dots between Rome, London and 
Washington, D.C., as well as the obelisks that tell us who they really are, that represent and are shown at each one of these uh, places, how these are really not a part in Washington, not a part of America, London, uh, not a part, that part of London, that small area, not a part of London proper in England, and Rome, not a part of Italy, but they're all sovereign, and we've went through that. Then I'm showing you how ISIS and the obelisks, where they come from, then I'm making the connection that through their signs and symbols, which is the key to telling us who they are, to the Declaration of Independence, at least five of them were Temple Bar attorneys. You know what the Temple Bar is all about. Explain that last half hour. All of whom had sworn allegiance to the crown. Alexander Hamilton was one of the middle crown agents during the formation of the U.S. and was assigned to set up the American banking system on orders from the crown to control the United States, of course. In fact, the state is a legal entity of the crown. Your state is a legal entity of the crown. The crown also beholden to Rome and the Vatican and the Pope. This is why we also have the state of Israel. It's the same thing. Beholden to the Pope. And that's why Israel, the Vatican has a strong influence in Jerusalem. And that's why someday they're going to take it over. Furthermore, of the members of the Constitutional Convention that signed our completed U.S. Constitution, seven were middle in Templars, who had also pledged allegiance to the crown. Therefore, it's no coincidence that today, copies of both the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution hang on the wall in the library of the Middle Temple in London. To put it in all context, it is the crown that controls the global financial system and runs the governments of all Commonwealth countries and many Commonwealth Western nations as well. The crown, of course, traces back to the Vatican, which is headed by the Pope. Now, let me add that their expertise, the Jesuit and the Vatican's expertise in fomenting wars and uh, infiltrating countries, is used by these groups. All right, so that was a little bit of an investigative journal report that was going back to 2015, and of course, that's why he's talking about ISIS. It was in the headlines at that point in the news. Um, and he goes and takes it a, a few different ways in his little discussion there, but he really hits on a few of the, the topics that I want to get on. And I'm not sure I agree with him on a lot of his perspective or the, the way that he looks at the landscape of history there. But from my point of view, he's really getting into the the ends of court and the the middle end and the um, the crown temple. And those are subjects that are very hard to really find out very much about. And he really just discussed them briefly and, and just names those things and doesn't have a lot of information to go along with them. But what I'm trying to derive out of his discussion is to arrive at that subject and it's really the prehistory of London. So if you go back before the time of the, the Saxons and the time of the rise of the Anglo-Saxon uh, Normans uh, there in in the Isle of Wales you would of course have go back in history, rewind the tape back and there's a very distant outpost of the Roman Empire thousands of years ago that existed there at a prehistorical time to the British people or the, the English nation, if you will. So this particular outpost, this um, city of Londinium, is the original sovereign district, which pre-existed and maintained its own independence as the rest
rest of English history began to unfold through the centuries. Um, so the city of London, the inner city, and the inner temple are not part of London itself. They have their own their own rules as we went over. So he's really bringing a lot of this issue uh, regarding the, the square mile and the banking district and the sovereignty of these banks and the immunity that they hold. And since they're in this particular district that has sovereignty, that has this special uh, international sovereignty, it therefore is a district that isn't beholden to the, the laws of the land around it. So they have obviously special uh, tax exempt status, or they have whatever status they have uh, that we don't know about because it's obviously none of, none of our business. Uh, but as we really are trying to get into other people's business here in this in this whole forum, um, the issue of globalism, the issue when we were dealing with the um, Steve Bannon earlier, the, the issue of the internationalist elite and the globalists beginning to side with China in this kind of epic swing to the east, and that's why we have to really kind of get into the and bolts of, well, what is the city of London? And what do they do? How do they control financial markets and banks? And how do they, everyone wants to talk about the Rothschilds. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of silly since they're probably just some employees over at the, at the city of London there. And as you connect the dots back, you begin to become aware that the Federal Reserve System constantly uh, borrows this international bank debt, and we borrow it, and we print it onto paper, and then we spend it. And the people that we're borrowing this debt from is the, the Bank of London. But the Bank of London isn't necessarily the Bank of the Queen. It's the Bank of this private corporation, the, the Crown Corporation, which is centered in the Crown Temple. And the Temple Church is the Templar Church, and it exists and resides within this banking district, within the city of London that's separate from London and apparently almost no one in the entire world really understands this and that there's this connection between these sovereign districts and these ways of operating within a status within law as a sovereign immunity such that Vatican City within Rome within Italy and that the city of London within London proper and obviously the district of Columbia that sits there in Maryland, uh, near Pennsylvania, and Virginia, obviously is a separate district also. And so we're trying to elaborate on this deeper subject matter, and it goes to the, the fact that if you really want to go get the bar exam and become an attorney, you have to go through the process of becoming registered with the Bar Association, and this has to do with the Temple Bar, and ultimately the, the power of London has control over the ends of court and controls a lot of what happens with our court systems here in the United States. We have some more material to get out here, and we're going to try to decipher and backwards engineer this whole system of globalism and power elite and the international order that really supports this system of imperialism. And this isn't the kind of imperialism that uh, AOC likes to complain about in the United States. This is real international imperialism that the United States was created to try to survive, like a life raft in the ocean. Okay, So the United States is the life raft, and the stormy ocean is imperialism and fascism, author authoritarianism. It doesn't matter how you get there, whether you're Muslim or Stalin or Hitler, they ultimately wanted to rule the country themselves. But in America, the people rule. And that's how it's supposed to be. Obviously, this past election, this past presidential election, I think that the elites all showed us all who's really boss and who really runs computer systems and who really runs elections and who really runs Mike Pence and really runs the Supreme Court. I think we're all finding out that there are orders within orders and there are, and really we're, as the international system is being built out, the people and the populism movement is really 
just kind of being quarantined. Um, it seems like Biden is starting to patch up some of the the, the wall, the holes in, the, in 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 Trump's wall, and they're continuing to make this huge barrier uh, for escape, right? So that you can't get out of the United States later on when they turn this place into a, a hellscape. And I think that's really what's coming. And they're already talking about going after the the guns. And Biden there is totally mentally deteriorated. He's he's just a complete complete retard at this point. He's he's basically insane. We have a, we have a president who's insane. Who's talking about he's going to have the AFT uh, come and get our guns. I mean, this is the most insane period, the most dangerous time in our history here in America. But let's get back to our discussion about the the order of the Garter and some of the other secret societies that are controlling the power of the financial power there in the inner city of London. In order to kind of tie this in a little a little more and show the occult connection between British Empire and the New England establishment, the uh, Eastern establishment of um, pretty much the area where the 13 colonies really existed to begin with. So you're really having to take into consideration there New York, Boston, and Philadelphia, and those kind of cities that were the earliest cities. And what will happen here is as we're moving forward, I'll put in the links and because these are videos and they're showing visual information and they're showing the ley line connections and the great circle connection lines between Stonehenge and New York City. So in order to really fully understand that reference, you'll have to look at the video. And like I said, I'll add the, the links in there. But this is um, this video is secrets in plain sight. And they're really going to show that they had a really good idea of how to connect the cities over uh, a great distance. So ultimately, these um, longitudinal lines and these meridian lines that uh, that you see on your globe in your classroom or you see on your, your your map chart, these kind of lines are going to be transecting the globe and connecting in great circle orbital tracks and and, uh, and bisecting across the uh, the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, there is a direct connection with, with London. And this was a secret connection that existed for a long time, obviously. And it showed their ability to really chart out the nautical measurements, the admiralty metric, the ability to connect, their ability to measure over great distances they were able to establish these cities in a direct line of connection. Of course, if you understand the history of, of England and a lot of their ley lines and a lot of their ancient mounds and their prehistoric sites, you understand that they're all connected with these line of sight, direct geometric lines. So let's listen to this fascinating clip. And, I, and like I said, in order to really get the full representation, you'll have to take a look at it and watch it later. It struck me that the horseshoe-shaped lawn in the White House backyard looked a lot like the bluestone ring at Stonehenge. That got me thinking how these two triangles together form a 5 by 12 rectangle that has the same proportions as the station rectangle at Stonehenge. Following this hunch, I drew a line from the tip of the federal triangle to the center of Stonehenge. Later on, I happened to zoom into New York City when this layer was on and saw that the alignment perfectly bisects Central Park. That's probably not an accident, so here we go. The angle that this large-scale alignment takes through Central Park matches the interlocking Pythagorean triangle's hypotenuses. Four such triangles match Central Park's proportions of 5 to 24 precisely. I then wondered, what is this unusual aqueduct doing just under the surface of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis Reservoir? It seems to mirror the triangle's hypotenuse angle. That's certainly odd. 
but in my research I've learned to follow so-called coincidences wherever they lead. The aqueduct leads us to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Getting closer still, we see this variation of the Templar flag in the atrium of the Robert Lehman collection. Incidentally, Albrecht Dürer's esoteric masterpiece, Melancholia I, is in this collection, and we'll study it in Egypt. In case you're thinking I'm imagining connections where none exist, right outside this room is one of the oldest artifacts in North America, a 3,500-year-old Egyptian obelisk from Heliopolis. Note the octagon surrounding yet another solar symbol. There are only a handful of ancient Egyptian obelisks left in the world, even counting those still in Egypt. So when I see one I sit up and take notice. This obelisk is the twin of Cleopatra's needle in London. Egyptian temples typically had paired obelisks at their entrances, so the obelisks now in New York and London used to together frame the entrance to a temple in Heliopolis. It was quite a difficult and expensive project in the 19th century, and even today, to transport a 224-ton slab of granite halfway across the planet. Connecting nations with ancient Egypt was apparently a very powerful motivator to the Freemasons who bothered moving these obelisks. So you can see that we'll be using a lot more of this research that you see in the, in the, in the video series, Secrets in Plain Sight. You can look up some of that material yourself. And as I go through it, I have to always include it because it's, it's so important. And the visual representation that he's using on Google Maps, so you need to look it up and check it out. And what we're showing there, and as you look at those images and see how even back uh, a couple of centuries ago, they were very good at using their ability to uh, guide themselves along uh, navigation routes seafaring routes and they were obviously able to line up using a great an equatorial line a great circle line um, at the which is a, a line a circular line at the greatest circumference around the sphere there they're able to interconnect of uh, the line between New York City Boston and Philadelphia and and Stonehenge and obviously the interconnection there with the Cleopatra's needle and the obelisks so we'll continue on with this this uh, visual representation and this line of thinking <clears throat> as we move forward. And we're going to break down New York City because it's, it's the first city coming across the Atlantic in the great circle meridian that directly lines up with the North American continent from the British island there. And so as the line continues, it passes through New York and continues on its course to Boston and to some of the other subsequent cities, including Washington, D.C. And so this alignment is very old, and it shows how long the preparation and the equipping and building up of this North Atlantic Treaty Empire that was built there. So as we're moving forward, you can see that he's going to break down the connections with the United Nations, and this is really moving towards this idea of new world order and globalism. So let's take a look here and listen to some of the, the more interesting aspects. And these are occult and, and Freemason designs within the cities, within the structures and the layout of the cities and the roads themselves. So in order to fully understand, I think it's important that you go back and check this out for yourself, this Secrets in Plain Sight episode that we're going to add in the notes, as I said before. So let's take a look at it. Extending the line of the submerged structure in the reservoir that led us to the Temple of Isis all the way to the East River, we are directed to the United Nations headquarters in Midtown Manhattan. 
The iconic Secretariat's building proportions are based on phi. As you know, this proportion links the structure with the Washington Monument and the Great Pyramid. Did you know the 69,000 square meter site of UN headquarters is considered international territory and is technically not a part of New York City? The UN headquarters has its own security force, fire department, and postal administration that even issues its own stamps. The notion of UN headquarters being a city within a city reminds me of how the Vatican is also a city within Rome. I like to refer to this as a nested city or fractal structure. I was fascinated to discover that the Italian government donated an Arnaldo Pomodoro sphere within sphere sculpture to the UN in 1991. The golden ball beautifully represents the concept of a city within a city. The internal structures seem to me like buildings and streets on the inner surfaces of the spheres. I'm intrigued because I've seen three other similar sculptures in locations significant to my research. Pomodoro made a series of six spheres within spheres scattered around the world. Significant sphere within sphere locations are the Hirschhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden in DC, very close to the Capitol building, the de Young Museum in San Francisco, and in the Vatican's courtyard of the Belvedere. The Security Council Chamber is the emergency room of the UN, where decisions involving economic sanctions and military action are sometimes made. Notice the horseshoe-shaped desk surrounding 13 chairs located at a rectangular table in the center. The mural is more than a small decorative element. It dominates the Security Council Chamber. Therefore, I think the choice of symbolism embedded in the mural tells us something about the character of the United Nations itself. I find the hidden connections to Masons and Egypt most provocative. Contemplating the United Nations got me thinking about national symbols. Consider the UN flag as a symbol of nations coming together in peace. As I already mentioned, the map is divided into 33 sectors. So I think it's interesting that he details his impressions about the directing and the raising and the military installation of imperial power from London into New England. And I think it's fascinating that he discusses how this kind of globalism and this international sovereignty that we see established there in Washington, in the District of Columbia, and in the inner city of London, and in the Vatican, is now being duplicated again in the United Nations, and that they have their own police force and their own laws and their own, basically their own sovereignty over New York City itself. So in order to kind of further this connection between um, New York City, Washington, D.C., and the Vatican, and their burgeoning imperial power there in the United Nations in New York City, we'll just go ahead and jump to the next episode and, and use some more excerpts from Secrets in Plain Sight. And we have a lot of material to go through, so I'm just going to kind of rush this part. You need to go back and check. They do these really interesting maps that you can't see in the podcast. So you need to go back and check the link and watch some of these videos here that we're adding in. So we're picking up where we left off with the connection with Stonehenge through New York City to Washington, D.C. Picking up the alignment that started at the tip of the Federal Triangle in D.C. through New York City's Central Park to its endpoint at the center of Stonehenge. We are wondering why would the founding fathers in DC and city planners in New York City conspire to link their fair cities with this ancient temple? The reason is simple. Stonehenge is at the heart of the mystery. Let's take a closer look. The first monument at the site was begun during the Neolithic period, 
around 3100 years before the Common Era, and Stonehenge was completed during the Bronze Age, approximately 4500 years ago. Here's a reconstruction of Stonehenge Phase 3 at its height, showing the sarsen ring with its stone lintels, huge trilithons, and smaller bluestones. The larger Aubrey Circle is a ring of 56 holes, accommodating four standing station stones. Connecting the station stones, we see what researchers call the station rectangle. The amazing thing is it has precisely the same 5 to 12 proportion as we've already seen in D.C., in New York City. Now we see where this proportion comes from. This is surely the oldest known example. The astronomer Gerald Hawkins has shown how the station rectangle encodes specific astronomical phenomena, including cycles of Earth, Moon, and Sun, commemorated by important festivals in the Celtic calendar. Stuckley, one of the founders of the field of archaeology in the 18th century, whose great work was studying Stonehenge, claimed that Freemasonry was a legacy of the Druids, who in turn got their knowledge from the ancient Egyptians. The seven-pointed star inscribed within the Aubrey Circle clearly locates the Sarsen Ring and frames the horseshoe of trilithons and bluestones. After identifying seven as Isis's secret number in New York City, I'm wondering if this seven-pointed star isn't the star of Isis. The Egyptian civilization was at its height at the time of Stonehenge's completion. And although we have no archaeological evidence physically linking the two cultures, it remains an intriguing possibility. So it is dreadfully wasteful to just be blowing through some of these interesting documents and videos and lectures that we have on this podcast. I mean, it's difficult because we really want to go into them more in depth, but we're, we're really trying to isolate this, this specific information that we're trying to, to point out to you here. We're trying to make it clear that there's careful and deliberate calculation over a great period of time that has gone into the planning and the building and the establishment of the imperial structures and just as it took such a great time and to great expense these men went to do to take these huge egyptian monoliths these um obelisks and to bring them halfway around the world and have them set up in these certain areas that their their intentions and their specific planning is is quite obvious if you understand the symbols so as we're moving on we need to kind of like get into a little bit deeper water here and to take a closer look at the city of london we'll assuredly return and revisit some of these episodes and, and some of this information and go as we move forward in our podcast because he does such a good job and covers so many different topics that we'll there's no way really to uh, avoid it going back with um the secrets in plain sight this fascinating resource for you to look at and we have to move on here with another really compelling lecture here by a fellow that they call the informer and his name isn't immediately apparent who he is but he likes to get on here and discuss some interesting stuff here with Visigoth and this is really just excerpts from part one and there's really six hours of this guy's interview and we really can't get into it we have to just take some some quick excerpts and just to put together what this guy is talking about to understand the information that he's kind of bringing to us so Visigoth and this is really rare hard to find I mean it always gets taken down and you have to go surf around and try to find who's going to bring it back out and, and, d and download it and put the information back up so let's look at this uh, the informer and Visigoth as always this is not me saying this this is them saying it and, and I don't agree with the entire scope and premise of everything that they argue in these particular interviews what I'm trying to get at is when they get to the time period in history when they have to talk about certain subjects when they get to the certain 
certain stage in the lecture series where they have to discuss certain topics, and I'm trying to isolate those topics. So that's what we're going for here. System and everything else was so askew that it wasn't conforming to what everybody believes as to the Constitution and, and rights and whatnot. So uh, I said at that point, when I happened to be in a particular appeal case, and uh, attorney walked in and uh, presented to the court a loss of shift that just happened that day, and I was, of course, arguing the same thing that shift was arguing, and uh, at that point, the court gave me about five minutes and wanted a response, and I said, I couldn't give you a response in five minutes, so they dismissed the case. Uh, that's what led me to say there's got to be something deeper than what's, what's going on, and i got to go back in time and find out why this is happening today. Me, did you not, and understandably so, I think most of us who have at least had some world history will remember this name, then it goes right back to uh, the uh, Code of Hammurabi. Yeah, the Code of Hammurabi, um, if anybody wants to go to the library because they can't afford the 26 volumes of Benedict on Admiralty, um, major uh, libraries would have it, small libraries would not have it. Um, but the law of Hammurabi was the law of all the nations, and uh, every nation picked it up. And this goes back to 2000 B.C. So um, <clears throat> the law of Hammurabi was actually uh, known and as the law of Orleron, the Rhodesian law, the Roman law. And what is interesting is the tie-in with Admiralty and the Uniform Commercial Code of today. Because in Hammurabi, that's all the nations dealt with was uh, admiralty, uh, maritime. And uh, that's what we have in the country today. So mm -hmm. that people have a hard time understanding if they're not a researcher. Uh, they usually have a gut reaction, a knee-jerk reaction, and they listen to other people. They listen to government. He's going to go into this whole thing pretty deeply, and you can take some time. I'll, I'll try to add some of, the, some of the links in with the podcast. But he's going to really show you how they arrive at a uniform commercial code. The uniform commercial code is what is the background codification of really of globalism itself that really tells... Um, that really gives the, the the outlying licensing and authority for all construction and for every kind of licensing. So it doesn't matter if you're going for your bar exam. It doesn't matter if you're a prisoner in a prison cell. It doesn't matter if you're a judge in a courtroom or if you're a policeman or if you're a teacher or if you drive a bus. Every single aspect of your uh, the design of the steering wheel of your bus or every single part of the legal the the, 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 the legal code and every part of federal law, every aspect of our lives, even the, the new COVID restrictions are, are emanations of uniform commercial code, UCC. And it's probably not something you've ever heard of. It probably 
it doesn't take a big, big, a big part of your life, but it really is the codification of our lives in every aspect. So if you're in the military and you're a general, what side of the uh, the, the collar you have to put your stars uh, on your collar, or where you wear your medals, or what kind of authority you have over your your uh, your inferiors, or you got, who you have to answer to, or uh, the every aspect of the safety design of vehicles. So when it comes about got down to government regulations, these are, are, are things that are playing a part in the uniform commercial code. And this uniform commercial code is a universal system of codification of weights and balances of measurements. And it's becoming something that is in the background of our lives, whether you live in Germany, whether you live in Uruguay, or whether you live in, in Russia, the uniform commercial code is something that is coming through the aspect of globalism where we're, we're all trading on some level. The, the, there's these huge markets and these ships are coming in and out of port, bringing goods, taking goods. So as we all get on the same system, as we all kind of play together in this global arena of trading and economics and getting on all on the same page, the Uniform Commercial Code governs our debit cards, banking transactions, um, the, the restrictions and the uh, allowances within court for lawyers, um, every aspect of our lives. So it's something for you to check out, Uniform Commercial Code, UCC. So, and, and they're really showing us how this system of admiralty is really taking over in our courts. So in order to, to kind of further, I just wanted to stop it right there and point out that he is going to go through several hours of this presentation and we don't, we don't really have all that much time. So we'll, we'll go ahead and just point out here that he is going to make this explanation. We have one of the original books of 1850 and all the judges uh, worth anything, uh, if they're worth anything, have this uh, book in their chambers. And it was just so happened that I happened to get a copy of it uh, over a period of uh, a year. Um, and uh, it is so easy to understand the 1850 edition that when you pick up the seventh edition, it's 26 volumes, and the original was one book approximately about two inches thick. It, wasn't, it was made for the people, if the people were merchants or were involved with merchants, that they could use this law. But it wasn't like um, God's law. Uh, it was um, just for for law merchants. That's why they call it the law merchant, the law of the law merchant. But actually, then, what we're looking at is a law that kind of um, is based upon uh, mercantilism. Yes, that's that's basically all all it was. And you got to remember, in the old days, that's all the the countries dealt with, and that's why they called it a maritime or admiralty because everything was across the ocean. And uh, uh, a funny thing about it is, uh, well, not really funny, but the odd thing is that all of the countries, including Europe and Rome, used it only for the. Um, mercantile and the oceans and the rivers and whatnot, and then they had what they called the common law, which was the king's common law, and it wasn't God's law. Uh, you can, a lot of people misconstrue common law, and when you pick up the book on the history of the American bar by Charles Warren, that will come out and tell you, and they have actual excerpts from the judges, and it's not a, it's, it's a history book of how the American bar was formed. Education was thrown to the wayside. Uh, children are, are disassociated and disaffected from 
the laws of, of the land and the way things really were and what we're supposed to be about so that they right. have no connection to that and it'll be easier for them to let go because obviously what we're headed for is a one world government um, you did yeah. mention something though uh, I'm in and I, I want to speak to it and then we're going to get into the core of the matter uh, that will uh, frame this first segment and that is you did mention admiralty now a lot of us our ears pop up when we hear that we think of gold fringe flags etc etc but really uh, there is something to the fact that that what we're looking at in, in courts of law and such is that yeah those flags are there for a purpose and I'm saying this if I'm wrong please let me know but but is there is it admiralty law that's in in the courthouses today Believe it or not, yes, um, and and this is the basis and a lot of myth that goes into what the people are looking at today. Mm -hmm. People are going to view what I say um, as cognitive dissonance, if you know what I mean. In other words, they're going to look at a lie they've been fed all their lives, which they believe to be true. Then when someone comes along and says the truth, that's where cognitive business come in. They will not believe the truth and believe it to be a lie. Right, because it doesn't match up with what they've been told in their history books and textbooks. Exactly. Right. Now, in this case, it says habeas and trial by jury is admiralty maritime as it is universal law. Now, the universal law goes back to the law of And um, it says that uh, in this particular case on 363, that jurisdiction is exclusively vested in the United States courts, and therefore the state court could not take cognizance of an offense. Here they're talking about maritime uh, crime. But it says, there are no doubt the courts of the United States are courts of limited jurisdiction, but not limited as cognizance to general class of cases. Um, this meaning and extent of the terms that they brought for, not in the common law, but in the civil law. Now, right here, this explains in this case that the civil law that we know of today is pure admiralty. There, in admiralty, there are two sides. There's prize and civil. The prize is criminal in admiralty. Once they in a criminal action, they revert to the civil side and everything falls under Title 28 because Title 28 is a pure admiralty statute. The whole title on that. Okay. And that's what you're dealing with in the courts. You can't rule on piracy on the high seas and so forth that was brought up in the Constitution. So uh, that's what the states were prohibited from doing the international part. Uh, so basically that's what you've got when you go into the courts and you're on the civil side, you know that you're in admiralty. And the Unification Act of 1966 plainly stated that this is the case. Okay. So, like I say, uh, it's really convoluted. And, and, of course, the Uniform Commercial Code was the old negotiable instrument law, and it still rules paramaterra because that is tied to admiralty. The admiralty and the UCC is one and the same. It's just a different name, that's all. One last question, and we'll go on to especially talking about uh, what you wanted to address, and that's the Templars of the Crown and what the Crown really means. Common man. It's made for the law.
our merchants operating as government. In other words, the Constitution is a legal document. There's no doubt about that. It's been written in the journals as a legal document, and it is couched in legal terms. And that's where a lot of people fall apart when it comes to terms and words, because a term is not a word. A term is a, a word that has been massaged by the legislative body to mean what it wants it to mean and not what the dictionary says it means. Okay. All right. <clears throat> now, moving into um, the parameters of uh, what we did want to address, and as we said before, we're talking about the Templars of the Crown, but the Crown means many things to many people, so which crown are we talking about? Okay, that's true. Now, uh, the governmental and the judicial systems within the United States, uh, both federal and state, is owned by the Crown now, which is a private foreign power. So, before jumping to conclusions like a lot of people do, the Queen of England and the royal families and, and so on and so forth, that's what they think the Crown when you talk about the Crown. Okay. Uh, it's it's really hard to grasp for the lot of people that are first exposed to this. But after you get involved in doing your own research and finding, finally finding out what's happening, it starts to come into a big jigsaw puzzle. There is no lawyers in this country. There's only attorneys. Because right off the bat, they're thinking the royal families and the king owns this. Well, that's not true. The, the the crown was known as the Templar Church, uh, and they're either the Crown Temple, the Crown Templar, they're all synonymous. And the church was built by the Knights Templar in two parts, the round and the chancel. And the round was consecrated in 1185. And it was modeled after the Church of the Holy Sculpture in Jerusalem. And what was the other one you said? The chancel? Yeah. C-H-A-N-C-E-L. Okay. And that was built in 1240. And they have middle and inner temples. And it's located in um, in London. And it's uh, the houses uh, it houses the crown offices of the crown. Mainly, the church was outside any canonical jurisdiction of the temple. And the master of the temple is appointed and takes place by uh, uh, a patent without induction or institution. Now, all the licensed bar attorneys owe their allegiance to this crown temple, but they don't realize it. You know, they're dumbed down, too. So there's certain, when you get up into the Supreme Court, the appellate courts, yeah, okay, these judges know it because they were attorneys. <laughs> right. Probably attorneys who couldn't make it on the outside, so they became a judge. <laughs> you know. so the secret city of London, the inner city of London's ancient roots and its ancient heritage and its sovereignty and its independence, its independence from other governments as a city, as a sovereign state, goes back to the Knights Templar. And they established the middle and inner temples, and the crown temple was established, the round temple was established in 1185, and the chancel in 1240. So this, even before England became a thing, this Londinium, this Roman outpost, this establishment of admiral 
difficulty. Hammurabi's code of commercial transaction between nations. So every nation has its own laws, but the way that these nations interact, they have to have a, a common system, a common code by which they can interpret each other's uh, wishes to buy or sell or interact uh, for goods. And so this is the universal law, the universal uniform commercial code is what it is today. And so we're really tying all these things together. We're really bringing these excerpts out, and we're not going to be able to necessarily go through the six hours of this guy's presentation. But if you ever have the time, I encourage you to take a look at it. I don't really agree with some of their opinions about the Constitution, but um, I think that there were people in the background who had intentions for the New World in, in, there in Europe. So let's go ahead and just get back into it, into their discussion here. The Bar Association are all signatories to this franchise, to the International Bar Association, and it's in the Inns of Court, I-N-N-S, Inns of Court of the Crown Temple. Now, what is interesting is uh, all the bar associations, American Bar, the Florida Bar, the California Bar, are all franchises to the Crown, all right? So right now, you know the Crown isn't the king. And the Inns of Court, there's four Inns of Court in the Crown Temple used the banking and the judicial system in the city of London. Now, the city of London is just like Washington, D.C. It's not part of England. Just like Washington, D.C. is not actually part of the 50 states. Right, let me hold you right there. So, therefore, you can speak about London, and that's not a problem. That's a city that's in England. But you talk about the city of London, and you're really talking about an entity unto itself, like the District of Columbia. Exactly. And, and can we also extrapolate and say the reason why the District of Columbia was set up as it was and not as a state was to reflect exactly what took place with the city of London? Right. Okay. Yeah. So now, <clears throat> what is interesting is when I was doing some research here in the state in uh, North Carolina, okay, um, there we were doing some research down in the archives. And after we got done in the archives, we went over into the um, Secretary of State's office, and we were looking up uh, particular portions, if there was anything to what we found in the archives, and what we had researched, or I had researched, and Montgomery on the Crown Temple, on, on the Inns of Court. Well, it just so happened, we went over there, and we got it from the uh, tax analyst in the UCC section. And we pulled up the American Inns of Court Foundation in Durham, North Carolina, and they give the address and the telephone number. And this particular one was contributions are deductible, and it was uh, an association. And they give the classification and the filing status, and it was non-profit. We found another one in Greensboro, North Carolina, the American Inns of Court Foundation. And it, too, was nonprofit. But then we got into the North Carolina Bar Association, and it's a business league, and it was for profit. It was listed under Section 501C6. We found another one in Cary, North Carolina, and it gives the judge the head one. It gives the asset amount, and these are all group affiliations and they are in business. There's another one in Charlotte, North Carolina, in the American Inns of Court. Then there's a North Carolina Association of District Judges. Contributions are not tax deductible, and they're a charitable organization. That's what they hold them out to be. And they're a group affiliation, independent organization, or an independent auxiliary. And then, of course, they have, you know, went into a lot 
that's when we found out the tie to the Inns of Court of England and to the Inns of Court in the United States. I'm in. Well, actually, in uh, America, it should be America. <laughs> I'm in. Let me stop yeah. you for a second, because as you were saying this, uh, lo and behold, here in Florida, there is a Tampa Bay in of court. And, okay. And it's, it's TBIOC, you know, love this, dot brinkster dot net. And on the homepage, it talks about the English Inns of Court and how it all began in 1292. Right. So folks out there, he's not blowing with smoke. Go take a look for it yourself. As he was speaking, I went ahead and I did a search. And uh, lo and behold, just like you said, they come up. The first one there was innsofcourt.org, which is what you were talking about. And then if you keep on moving down, uh, you're right. Uh, you get state and regional ones that will pop up. Right. Uh, let me ask you this before we go on. Can you just can hang on to that thought for a second. I don't want to make you lose that train of thought. Okay. Um, one, this does really go back to Freemasonry, doesn't it? Yeah. High degree Freemasonry. Okay. Right. Second of all, I just want to share something with you. Uh, there is a group that's not very well known, yet it's been around for a two, uh, 103 years. Are you familiar with the Pilgrims Society? I've heard of it. That's all I have. I, I really okay. have to So we're really kind of getting deep into the, the wilderness here of information, things that uh, you really haven't heard before, haven't maybe understood. Maybe you understood there was a background network, the way the world works, the, the systems of power that you just kind of understood that were always there. But of course, our system of law here is built on the British common law, and it, goes, it stands to reason that really it's the a priori authority of the crown courts that reflect the power of the crown temple and the, the middle temple, the inner temple, and the secret city of London. I think it's fascinating right there because we'll go into the discussion about the Pilgrim Society later on and the Rhodes Foundation, the Cecil Rhodes, uh, the Roundtable discussion, and it really interlinks the, the British imperial power, system of power, with the, the progressive party and the leftists in this country as they've worked hard to split this country apart and ultimately bring us into debt with European money powers. You go when you go to Amazon and look for Pilgrim Society, there's a modern day, uh, shall we say biography of it obviously authorized but in the back of it i man it talks about through the years because it's one of these another one of these anglo-american establishment things okay that quickly doesn't talk about though it was there you know for quickly to, to speak to and he didn't however when they get back to the meetings through the years of all the luminaries who came they talk about what was spoken about like the title of the uh, speech perhaps right but when it ever gets to any of the ends of court like the middle in or something like that, it right. says nothing. That's right. And people can go check it out for themselves if you want to get your hands on that book, but there is nothing ever divulged about the meetings of the Pilgrim Society in any of the inns of courts. Thanks for, so much for letting me get that in, and by all means, you know, go ahead. Yeah. Um, okay, what it is, is um, the first uh, chancel of the Temple Church was built by the Knights Templar. All right, it's not new. Uh, it's been around for before they did it, but the Chantry and the Crown Inner Temple Court was where King John was in January 1215. That's when the English barons demanded that he confirm the rights enshrined in the Magna Carta. Okay. Okay. Now this is really tricky. The City of London Temple was the headquarters for the Knights Templar in Britain, and where the order and the rule was first made. Now. 
going to really uh, upset a lot of people, but... <laughs> That's why we got you on. <laughs> the Vatican is involved in this big time. Yep. All right, so let's just give it a pause and put a pin in it right there, because he's going to go into the discussion about how the Vatican is linked in, and it's not hard, totally hard to understand that the Vatican came into place as a church institution on top of the relic and the ruin and the uh, the pomp and power and riches of the Roman Empire, so it became the Roman Empire Church, and that's what you ultimately have in the Vatican. And one of its outposts there far in the north was an old Egyptian monolithic site that the Romans occupied called Londinium, and ultimately the city of London would be protected by the Templars who would protect the asset of that ultimate authority and independence of the city of London for the Pope. And then ultimately as, as England grew and London, the actual capital, the larger expanse of the city that has millions of people in it, London, a capital of England, began to grow in its laws and its authority. The inner city the square mile, the inner city of London, the old Roman fort got to maintain its independence because it was a treasure city that the Templars controlled for the Pope. So that's how we really get into this part about all of a sudden the Vatican being involved. And that's how we're really be able to understand this symmetry of the empire of the three cities, which goes from obviously from the Vatican to London to Washington, D.C. And obviously New York City is getting involved now, becoming the, uh, the center point of the United Nations which is the outlying skeletal structure of the New World Order and the global governance, the one world system that they're building. And they're really building it right on the back, the framework of the old world empire and the ruins thereof. So in order to really illustrate this point, we have to really point out that there's a lot of information available. And I really just want to break down the whole structure of the discussion into something a little bit more simple. So let's just listen to this information clip. It's fascinating. City of London, known for its historical landmarks, modern skyscrapers, ancient markets, and famous bridges. It's arguably the financial capital of the world and home to over 11,000 people. Wait, what? 11,000? That's right, but the City of London is a different place from London. Though London is also known for its historical landmarks, modern skyscrapers, ancient markets, famous bridges, and is home to the government, royal family, and 7 million people. But if you look at a map of London crafted by a careful cartographer, that map will have a one square mile hole near the middle. It's here where the city of London lives inside the city named London. Despite these confusingly close names, the two Londons have separate city halls and elect separate mayors who collect separate taxes to fund separate police who enforce separate laws. The mayor of the city of London has a fancy title, the Right Honorable the Lord Mayor of London, to match his fancy outfit. He also gets to ride in a golden carriage and work in a guild hall, while the mayor of London has to wear a suit, ride a bike, and work in an office building. The city of London also has its own flag and its own crest, which is awesome and makes London's lack of either twice as sad. To top it off, the city of London gets to act more like one of the countries in the UK than just an oddly located city. For, uniquely, the corporation that runs the city of London is older than the United Kingdom by several hundred years. So how did the UK end up with two Londons, one inside of the other? Because Romans. 2,000 years ago, they came to Great Britain, killed a bunch of Druids, and founded a trading post on the River Thames and named it Londinium. Being Romans, they got to work doing what Romans do, enforcing laws, increasing trade, building temples, public baths, roads, bridges, and a wall to defend their work. And it's this wall which is why the current city of London exists. For, though the Romans came and the Romans went and kingdoms rose and kingdoms fell, the wall endured protecting the city within. And the city, governing itself and trading with the world, grew rich. 
a thousand years after the Romans, yet still a thousand years ago, when William the Conqueror came to Great Britain to conquer everything and begin modern British history, he found the city of London with its sturdy walls more challenging to defeat than farmers on open fields. So he agreed to recognize the rights and privileges city of Londoners were used to in return for them recognizing him as the new king. Though after the negotiation, William quickly built towers around the city of London, which were just as much about protecting William from the locals within as defending against the Vikings from without. This started a thousand year long tradition whereby monarchs always reconfirmed that yes, the city of London is a special unique place that's best left to its own business, while simultaneously distrusting it. Many a monarch thought the city of London was too powerful and rich, and one even built a new capital city nearby, named Westminster, to compete with the city of London and hopefully suck power and wealth away from it. This was the start of the second London. As the centuries passed, Westminster grew and merged with nearby towns, eventually surrounding the walled-in and still separate city of London. But people began to call the whole urban collection London and the name became official when Parliament joined the towns together under a single municipal government with a mayor. But the mayor of London still doesn't have power over the tiny city of London, which has rules and traditions like nowhere else in the country and possibly the world. For example, the ruling monarch doesn't just enter the city of London on a whim, but instead asks for permission from the Lord Mayor at a ceremony. While it's not required by law, the ceremony is unusual to say the least. The city of London also has a representative in Parliament, the Remembrancer, whose job it is to protect the city's special rights. Because of this, laws passed by Parliament sometimes don't apply to the City of London, most notably voting reform laws, which we'll discuss next time. But if you're curious for a preview, unlike anywhere else in the UK, elections in the City of London involve medieval guilds and modern companies. Finally, the City of London also owns and operates land and buildings far outside its border, making it quite wealthy. Once you start looking for the city's crest, you'll find it in lots of unexpected places, most notably on Tower Bridge, which, while being in London, is operated by the City of London. These crests everywhere, when combined with the city of London's age and wealth and quasi-independent status. So that's just another little interesting tutorial that gives us some more insight into what is the secret inner city of London and gives us the historical background that's well known. And I just want to add a few more segments and a couple more articles of information to this particular episode. And um, we're going to listen to this particular guy here. He does a little report on the crown. It's really long. It's like probably an hour and 15 minutes. But we're just going to listen to a couple minutes of it, listen to him discuss some of the interesting connections there. And I'll, I'll add the link. So if you want to go back and look through, he does a lot of uh, different articles. And it's really, really interesting. So let's listen to what he has to say how influential they are. So this is that's just what the remembrancer is and does. So it's very intriguing that this guy has so much power and yet no one, I didn't know he existed until I did this research. It's just crazy, isn't it? Whereas there's something else I did want to... Where is it I wanted to see? The Square Mile has another major attraction. It's almost non-existent approach to financial regulation. By having a large base in the city, global financial institutions get the best of both worlds. They get the EU passport right, passporting rights, that is the ability to trade across Europe, as well as the ability to engage in activities that would be unimaginable in most of the financial jurisdictions, including New York. It's no coincidence that the London has been home to just about every major global financial scandal of the last decade, including LIBOR, Forex, MF Global, the London Whale and Rampant Gold and Oil Price Frigging. So you can just say why all these banks fit into this little square mile. 
because nothing's regulated. Even though you'll see on telly, I think that's more to do with the UK or outside of London. Who knows? I, I'm not an expert on this, and I don't <laughs> pretend to be. But this guy, the Paul Double, is the Remembrancer. And look at that iconic image. Just screams uh, the Masonic and Secret Society influence. Hopefully you've enjoyed that little bit on who is the Remembrancer. So we've seen a lot of these throughout the years. Obviously, uh, financial, spiritual, mil military are Vatican, the City of London and Washington, D.C. We've seen these so many times and a lot of people know about these. There are three separate entities in each country. Well, the last video I did on the AIRU, <laughs> I showed about the pentagram and how it fits into the districts of Columbia, as you can see. But we know the three stars stand for Washington DC, City of London. But here's City of London, you have a pentagram in the City of London. These are the churches. So you get this everywhere. So this is the City of London pentagram. You have a pentagram in the Vatican. As you can see here, this is not the only one I found for the Vatican. You also have this one in regarding the key. The key, like Janice key. And as you can see, another pentagram. And then without the red, I'm just going to zoom in a bit more and show you a little bit better. So there you have the Vatican's pentagram. And lastly, but not leastly, <laughs> the Washington DC pentagram. So the three stars that that just said represents London, the Vatican and Washington DC both have pentagrams that match the stars itself. A quick tidbit to that, obviously we had the three stars representing Washington DC, the Vatican and City of London. Isn't it funny that there's three observatories in Rome? As you can see, one, two, three. And we have three observatories in London, as you can see on the screen. And you have three observatories in Washington DC. As we introduce this information and we take, kind of go further down the rabbit's hole here, we have to learn more and more about some of the information, things that we never had any idea about. These are the, the factors and the principalities, the dynamics, the, the different legal paradigms that are in the background that are shaping our global policies and are going to be inextricably either opposed to us. And really, that's, that's kind of what this episode, how this episode began is is. is looking closely at the city of London's and their finance, the great financial assets there in the private and independent. The unimaginable wealth of the city of London is seeming to be partnering with the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, through the European Union and the trade deal thereof. And of course, we, are, we were discussing in previous episodes that the Vatican has a special concordat with the CCP and is there trying to make sure that they have the monopoly on church Christianity that's happening there in the home, the mainland in China. And speaking of China and the kind of horrific depravity that's taking place there under the Chinese Communist Party, as it's taking control of the, it's taking the hegemony in the region and it's threatening Taiwan. And we have this complete retarded doofus in the White House 
who's going to make matters worse and it's kind of bringing on World War III here. And then we have the Vice President, this lightweight, total reprobate moron, uh, Harris or whoever. It just, it's, and of course, I mean, I guess Trump and Pence are as much of a, a bunch of sellout jokes as well And when it comes down to it. So, but not to get sidetracked, let's continue to press on the matter here and look at the, the city-states. This is, this is the question of the city-states. So these particular cities are within themselves their own sovereign states and nations. So the Vatican is inside of Rome. It's a city within a city, but the Vatican City has its own status as a nation. And this is not just hyperbole. It's actually a case. If you look in, in the United Nations, the uh, Holy See or the Vatican has its own seat, just like China or Russia or Afghanistan. Or if you look at the whole idea of the European Union itself, but of course the Vatican, this tiny city, has its own seat. So we have to look over and discover that London has an ancient city within itself that was controlled by the Templars and protected. It goes back to the Romans. It's a city within a city that has its own sovereignty and international immunity and its own status as a nation. And you have the same situation happening within Washington, D.C. It doesn't belong to any of the United States of America, but it has its own district. And we'll get into that a little bit later in this episode, the history of the District of Columbia, which is fascinating. It goes back to John Carroll and the Carroll family and their particular, their enormous farm there. And they gave their farm, their property over to become the District of Columbia. But we'll get into that as we move forward. Right now, I want to look at Craig Oxley. He's interesting, a very interesting uh, researcher, and he has some things to say about this, the matter of the city of London, so let's listen to him. The origins of the HIV fraud goes back to Knight of Malta, Robert Galler, who was awarded the Sword of Ignatius Loyola Award by the Jesuits at St. Louis University. The Demarius will have connections within the Worshipful Company of Mercers and the Worshipful Company of Fuelers, which control both the financial and energy sectors. The Fuelers also control the military and intelligentsia. The Mercers basically control everything as they are the number one original livery company having ties to all, such as the education system and banking systems. They were the main banksters in the world a long time before the livery brought about recently the worship for company of international bankers. If you now look at Peter Goldsmith, you'll see he now works at the number one US law firm called DB Boys and Plimpton LLP. This world is controlled through courts tied to the inns of court, which all these powerful hidden controllers stem from and connected with the Bar Association, either into law or finance, at the very top controlling everything else, including energy, which is the second most important of all. Keep your eyes on this Demoraeus family in the future, as they are far more powerful than even the article linked would let you know. You do not have the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, King Juan Carlos, visit your mansion for no reason unless you have power or you're one of his puppets he needs and uses. This part of the article linked should have really given you a clue to their power. This family remind me of the hidden house of Keswick in Scotland, which many haven't heard of at all. But it's basically your HSBC and Hong Kong connection, just like this Demoraeus. Remember, the guy that started the connection with China was actually Knight of Malta Henry Luce. Then you had later Knight of Malta George Herbert Walker Bush. And of course, this Paul Demoraeus concluding the deals. 
the Worshipful Company of Mercers Control China through the National Committee on US-China Relations, along with the Chinese People's Institute of Foreign Affairs, and finally the American China Forum of the National Committee on US-China Relations. Don't be fooled by the upcoming Sino-Russian war with the US. It's all an illusion, with both sides being controlled by the Jesuits and their financiers, the Mercers. Russia is controlled by leadership trained by the college Russicum in Rome, whilst leadership of the US are trained at Georgetown University. Do a study of the true power of Karl Marcy, whose daughter-in-law, Christine Marcy, was trained at Georgetown University. She basically controls the United States under the priesthood of her New Jerusalem Bullivoy Senior Executive Service and the National Academy of Public Administration. Remembering that the Jesuits utilised their crown bar to continue the British Empire by proxy for the Roman Empire. This empire uses the crown agents to control a lot of the finance and debt worldwide under the worshipful company of Mercers. Just take a look at their CSDRMS system for starters. The empires never died, and now Emperor King Juan Carlos controls them all under the priesthood of Kronos, aka the Aragon Templars, aka the Jesuit Order, run by Adolfo Nicholas SJ. Remembering Peter Ant's Colvinback SJ's control in the Middle East turmoil, as he did in times gone by, whilst Adolfo is more focused on the Far Eastern side of things. In truth, today it's the era of the two generals, not one, but this isn't meant to be known to the people, and Colvinback wants to slip into the darkness unseen. So I know we're getting pretty deep into the weeds here, but it really, if you watch this little video, he's showing the flag of Macau. And for a long time for the British Empire, Macau was a banking empire that was really um, the place where they would store a lot of their, their money as they were trying to uh, find a way to open up the kind of closed off cultural dynasty of the Chinese, the Ming dynasty and so on and so forth. And as the British were forcing the market open, if you will, they used Macau as their bank empire on that side of the world and today it's exactly that influence of the city of london there in the banking district of macau that is influencing china and is really uh, funding a lot of the build-up of the ccp to threaten america and threaten the west and it's this build-up this infiltration of china over time the destruction of the manchu dynasty and the culture of the historical culture of the chinese people and this introduction this kind of super imposition of communism, which is really the work of Karl Marx and a lot of these other guys from Europe who were just white guys with white male privilege who thought up all these ideas that were going to be instrumental in collapsing Cambodia and collapsing uh, China into this tyranny of absolute totalitarian rule that um, is being used by the banking interests there in Macau to control the entire region and to have this arms build up. And ultimately, the CCP is c controlled by their economic paymasters, and that has been for a long time the British, even when the uh, when Russell, William Russell, founder of Skull and Bones, and when his family was using their enormous shipping 
which had a huge fleet of ships that sent goods all over the world and ultimately they brought all the opium in and the silver out of China and if you remember it was Francis Xavier who was the Jesuit who was instrumental in breaking into the closed society there in China it's been many centuries of their intrigue and their influence their machinations their scheming that's been building up there and their intervention using the American military and using the capital of the city of London and using the imposition of religion which was what happened in Vietnam Catholicism was very involved when the Catholics were pushed south and also the same thing is happening in China right now where the Vatican is very involved in China nobody else can get in there Christians are being imprisoned but the Catholic Church is able to operate carte blanche so I have to look with a critical ear and a critical eye at a lot of the kind of propositions that Craig Oxley makes, but at least he has the courage and the intuition, the wherewithal to be able to bring the whole picture together and make it apparent that it is the e, the city of London, the inns of court that are really controlling a lot of the legal system, that they have the worshipful order of mercers and several other guilds that are operating out of the city of London that are controlling financial markets around the world and the people like the Rothschilds are just one of many, many, many families, a little uh, banking clerk that work for these huge institutions that have been lasting you know, for centuries. And um, in the video, it talked about the corporation that controls the city of London. And so the Templars were involved and participated in that, but they were taken out and didn't survive and were removed out of the way, at least historically they were. But the Crown Temple itself continued to carry on and exist and maintain its independence and its sovereign status. It brings a whole new level of understanding to you when you hear the term the crown, that these are interests that serve the crown. And, and we think that it's the crown that's on top of Queen Elizabeth, her head. But of course, you have to understand that before that monarchy existed, the corporation, the crown corporation as it is today, existed a long time ago as the city of London and before that um, as a Roman outpost. So in order to pr proceed, in order to you know be very firm and thorough, we have to go through some of the history here. And this is what will bring us back to the informer, and we were we'll, we'll get back to that later. But right now, we're going to look at Professor Walter Vyth is going to break down some of this information for us, and give us a lot of the background history that's not so apparent regarding the monarchy there in England and the the ancient uh, and private city of London and the corporation that now controls of the Crown Corporation and. Of course, the, the the center of that city is built up by the church there, Temple Church, which is the Templar Church, and um, the round of the chancel. So it's the Crown Temple there, and that Templar power is asserting so much uh, um, supremacy within Freemasonry, and that is tied back to the Vatican through the Jesuit order, who is so meticulous in maintaining these noble family lines and maintaining these bloodlines. Who's a count? Who's a duke? Who's a duchess of Saxony? Who's the Duke of Wellington? And so on and so forth. And the masters are making sure that all those things kind of stay moving forward and all those noble heritages and lineages and the divine right of kings and these, these medieval uh, dark age suppositions about authority from the prelates of the Vatican to coronate the, the monarch who is to rule over all the people who we all must kneel or and he will either cut off our head or make us into a knight or maybe give us um, some kind of land somewhere and he, he makes all the decisions and um, 
it's it's a direct diametric opposition to what we have here in America, where every man votes and uses his own sovereignty and authority to choose to choose, or we're, we're at least we're supposed to choose uh, our officials and our presidents. And of course, you can see that that's become a joke, and that the the, uh, the international elite, as it were, the City of London and the Vatican, are going to show everyone who really controls things there in Washington, because now we have this retarded imbecile Biden in there. And I've been going off on him a lot, so let's really just get back to the focus here. We're going to listen to some interesting history from Professor Walter Veith. And Walter Veith, Professor Walter Veith is going to take care of some significant history background for us. And he does a really good job. He's going to go through some really ancient lexicons of history and to, to unfold some of the important points of how the Crown Temple became what it is today and its relationship to the Vatican and ultimately the control that it wields over Washington, D.C. So let's listen to Walter Veith. He's going to break this down for us. And this is by no means the end. We need to ultimately revisit some of the earlier information and to really to have a complete and fully rounded investigation of this whole subject matter. But it's important to enable to, in order to go forward, it's important to understand where we've come from and what our history really is. And we can't really address some of these underlying kind of uh, systemic issues that we have over our, our massive debt and understanding how our, our bifurcated system of our two-party political process in this country is really an enormous Hegelian dialectic and it's really bringing disaster to our country. So we need to really address this. We need to understand really what's behind it. And we need to really get into something that the one fellow, the Visigoth fellow who was interviewing the informer in some of the previous discussions, he was talking about the Pilgrims Society. And that's another leg of this that we have to understand. And it goes to, you know, an aspect of our culture there and the, the Georgetown set ultimately is controlling what's happening there in Washington, D.C. with boots on the ground. And um, I think that the Pilgrim Society ties back to the British influence when it comes to Cecil Rhodes and the Rhodes roundtables. And we'll get into that some more later with the Pilgrim Society. But like I said, I, I challenge you to go through some of these facts and break it down and tell me where I'm missing it or how, you know, this is just a tinfoil hat conspiracy theory and it's just nonsense. And uh, if you have an explanation for the, um, the Templar Church, Temple Church there in the inner city of London, then just go ahead and, and just hit us with an email and we'd like to hear back from you about it. But right now, Walter Vaith is going to bring a principle of integrity and historicity and factual, a, fa a strong factual basis for this whole discussion. So let's go ahead and just let him break down the background with the, the crown there in London. Now, it's interesting that there are only two surviving ancient monarchies. There are many monarchies, but the two oldest ones that can take their lineage all the way back happen to be Rome and Great Britain. Let's read. The only two people in the world who share the same status, power, please note that this person is saying same, but we'll see whether that is so. The same status, power, and position are the Pope and the Queen. Papal see is considered the world's oldest authority on royalty. The Almanac de Gotha, which is that, that's the most revered mouthpiece for who is royalty in the world, the Almanac de Gotha, says they are the oldest monarchy in the world. So the papacy is the oldest continuous monarchy in the world. Therefore, that makes the Pope a king, with the cardinals of the church considered to be equal to the sons of kings. 
the heads of a world religion, the ruler of a recognized country, the Vatican. And the queen comes from this world's second oldest monarchy. She's the head of the Anglican Church and is the ruler of Britain. As her titles show that the Army, Navy, and Air Force of the United Kingdom report to her. They are literally Her Majesty's Army, Her Majesty's Navy, Her Majesty's Air Force. And in your country, Her Majesty's Canada, right? Look on your notes and you will see her there. So, she is a very important person. And she must be a prominent ruler to take into account, or is it so? Today I want to discuss history with you. And when we've discussed history, we'll go to the future. We'll come to our present time. I call this the battle over Britain. You know the battle of Britain, don't you? But this is somewhat different. This is the battle over Britain. And I want to start this battle when Britain was squarely in the Roman Catholic camp. And a king was ruling, and the dates are over there. He ruled as king, 1154 to 1189, as king of England, he was also king of Scotland, and his name was Henry II. And there he is. And this is where history gets a twist, fascinating twist. Now let's jump to a somewhat more modern time. 2nd of February, 2005, that's when the Pope died. And the newspapers in the world recorded his great activities. And in England, they remembered the prayers as the Pope visited the UK in 1982. A memorable moment when the Pope climbed off his aeroplane in his customary way, he kissed the ground, showing that the territory was whose? His. Now, it's always interesting to watch what these globalists are doing. And in the afternoon, a crowd of 80,000 gathered for Mass at the Wembley Stadium in what was billed as the first of the Pope's outdoor spectaculars. They sung... Careful note of what they had to sing. He's got the whole world in his hands. And they clapped their hands as he arrived in his Pope mobile. He has the whole world in his hands. That's what he sang. This was the first visit of a Pope to that nation in centuries. Now, what else did he do? The Pope met with Prince Charles and the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, the Archbishop of Canterbury is apparently subject to who? To the Queen. Because she is the head of the Anglican Church. Following the death of the Pope, people in Kent have been remembering his historic visit to Canterbury in 1982. John Paul II became the first pontiff ever to visit the UK when he made the six-day tour of the country. Fascinating. First one, and he stayed six days. How many days? Six. 
He visited Canterbury Cathedral on the 29th of May to say prayer with the then Archbishop of Canterbury, who happened to be Robert Runcie. There he is in the picture. Streets were lined by 25,000 people, and the Pope told the congregation it was a day which centuries and generations have awaited. Wow, this is fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. Now let's go back to a little bit of history and note what the Pope did. This is the BBC News, Saturday the 2nd, 2005. The BBC reports, The Pope and Dr. Runcie knelt in silent prayer at the place of the martyrdom, the spot where Sir Thomas A. Beckett was murdered in 1170. Now remember that nothing that they do is without purpose. And here the Archbishop and the Pope go and they kneel down there where all those centuries ago Thomas Beckett had been murdered. Hmm. Here is a relief of Thomas Beckett's murder and you have the four knights who overheard Henry II talking about this pestilent monk and they thought to do the king a favor by getting rid of him and they murdered him. And uh, the honorary canon of the cathedral when the Pope was there said, quote, it was a very moving moment to see the Pope and the Archbishop of Canterbury praying in the very spot where the most famous of all archbishops, Thomas A. Beckett had fallen so many centuries ago. I would beg to differ on that point. But uh, who am I if I favor Cranmer over this gentleman? But nevertheless, he was here, according to them, the most famous archbishop that Canterbury ever saw. Now, why did the Pope kneel there? Why was it significant that he said centuries have waited, has the whole world in his hand? Why was this significant? What happened all those centuries ago in the time of Henry II? Why was Archbishop Beckett murdered? Well, let's read about it. In the tradition of Norman kings, Henry II was keen to dominate the church like the state. Here was a king, he said, I'm boss of my own country, and you church will listen to me. At Clarendon Palace on the 30th of January 1164, the king set out 16 constitutions aimed at decreasing ecclesiastical interference from Rome. Rome, you take second place in my country, I'm first. Do you do that to Rome and get away with it? But the newly appointed Archbishop of Canterbury refused to ratify the proposals. Henry was characteristic stubborn, and on the 8th of October, 1164, he called the Archbishop Thomas Beckett before a royal council. The Archbishop knew what was coming, so he fled. He fled to France, and there he was under the protection of Henry's rival, Louis VII of France. Rival, Louis VII of France. In 1170, the Pope was considering excommunicating all of Britain, 
Only Henry's agreement that Becket could return to England without penalty prevented this fate. So here was a war between church and state. Thomas A. Becket was murdered in 1170. The king was angry that he had to give in to this pressure. Then he made these remarks about this pestilent monk. And his knights went and solved his problem. Actually, they created a big problem. History is fascinating. You know, there's an old saying which says, Rome never forgets. Well, Henry's knights wanted to do the king a favor. Just three years later, Becker was canonized and revered as a martyr. It took three years and he was a martyr. Against secular interference in God's church. Now you can understand why the Pope knelt there. Centuries later. Pope Alexander III had declared Thomas Becket a saint. And historian John Harvey believes it was yet another failure in Henry's religious policy, an arena which he seemed to lack adequate subtlety. And politically, Henry had to sign the Compromise of Avranche, which removed from the secular courts almost all jurisdiction over the clergy. So the king had to sign that he had no rights to control the clergy. This compromise in 1172 marked the reconciliation of Henry II of England with the Catholic Church after the murder of Thomas Becket. Henry was purged of any guilt in Becket's murder, but he agreed that the secular courts had no jurisdiction over the clergy, with the exception of high treason, highway robbery, and arson. Fascinating. Now what's even more interesting, he had to be punished. Now who is higher? The one who is punishing or the one who is being punished? Well, let's look at history. The murder had far-reaching consequences for England, but the immediate result was that Henry II had to make peace with the church. He did this four years later by performing penance at Canterbury Cathedral. He was beaten by 80 monks while wearing sackcloths and ashes. There is the picture. There's the poor king. Here are the monks beating the king. Naughty king. Hmm. And spent the night in vigil at St. Thomas Becket's tomb. The church had wasted no time and had canonized Becket. He also had to promise to raise money for the Crusades and to either mount a crusade or make a pilgrimage. He did neither. There was enough to do at home. So he was in trouble. This king was in trouble and he was severely reprimanded and he got the hiding of his life. Fine. Now let's go a little bit further into history. Just, just a couple of years. Now, England was pretty humiliated. Can you imagine how they felt? Their king was beaten up by monks. And uh, they had to pay all this money, supposedly. Well, King John's concession of England and Ireland. Now, King John is very famous. There he is, King, 1167 to 1260. In the matter of the election and installation of Stephen Langton as Archbishop of Canterbury, King John, in the words of Pope Innocent III, had by impartial...
pious persecution tried to enslave the entire English church. So here this next king comes and he says, I don't want that archbishop, I want another one. And the Pope says, who do you think you are? I say what goes. Did we have a little altercation with China and the present Pope just recently? Always oh, very interesting. You don't tell the Pope who's boss. And he said, King, you will listen to me. You will appoint the one I want. Hmm. As a result, the Pope laid on England an interdict, 1208 to 14, a sort of religious strike, wherein no religious service was to be performed for anyone guilty or innocent. When that didn't, when this didn't work, the king himself was excommunicated. Now you must remember how afraid those people were. If you weren't with the church, you were lost forever. The people were fear-struck. The king had been excommunicated. Caving in under that pressure, John wrote a letter of concession to the Pope, hoping to have the interdict and the excommunication lifted. The year was 1213. John's concession, which in effect made England a fiefdom of Rome. Please note where I've taken this from. This comes from sources of British history. So England became a fiefdom to Rome, worked like a charm. The satisfied Pope lifted the yoke he had hung on the people of England and their king. But that wasn't enough. King, put it there. Put it there. So the king went and he signed a declaration. And he relinquished the crown. There is the picture of the crown being placed at the feet of the Roman prelate. The crown of England, Rome is yours and I will rent it back at a fee. Fascinating history. This is mind-boggling. Nobody even thinks about it today. Let's carry on. Now, this is the concession he signed and I'm going to bore you by actually reading it because you cannot get more interesting history today than that. This is the medieval source book, John I's concession of England to the Pope. This is what he said. John, by the grace of God, King of England, Lord of Ireland, Duke of Normandy, etc., etc., to all the faithful of Christ who shall look upon this present charter, greetings. We wish it to be known to all through this our charter, notice the words, charter, furnished with our seal, that inasmuch as we have offended in many ways God and our mother, the Holy Church, and in consequence are known to have very much needed the divine mercy and cannot offer anything worthy for making due satisfaction to God and to the Church unless we humiliate ourselves and our kingdom. We wishing to humiliate ourselves for him or humiliated himself for us unto death, the grace of the Holy Spirit inspiring, not induced by force or compelled by fear, but of our good, own good and spontaneous will, and by the common counsel of our barons, do offer and freely concede to God and his holy apostles Peter and Paul, and to our mother, the holy Roman Church, and to our Lord Pope Innocent and his Catholic successors, the whole kingdom of England, the whole kingdom of Ireland, with all their rights 
and opportunities. So any future gain of that kingdom is conceded to whom? To the Pope. For the remission of our own sins and those of our whole race as well for the living and for the dead. Now receiving and holding them as it were as vassals. What is a vassal? One who serves. From God and the Roman church in the presence of that prudent man, Paul the subdeacon of the household of the Lord Pope, we perform and swear fealty. That means subservience. We swear fealty. To them, to him, our aforesaid Lord Pope Innocent and his Catholic successors in the Roman Church. According to the form apprehended and the presence of the Lord Pope, if we shall be able to come before him, we shall do liege homage. Wow! We are merely vassals to the Pope. Binding our successors and our heirs by our wife forever. In similar manner to perform fealty and show homage to him who shall be chief pontiff at that time. Who is it today? Benedict. Well, here's an interesting document. And to the Roman church without demure. That's it. Done deal. As a sign, moreover, of this our own, we will and establish perpetual obligation and concession forever. We will establish that from the proper and special revenues of our set kingdom, and then he talks about how much money he's going to have to pay for renting back the privilege of the crown from the real owner who is now who? Who is the Pope? Who becomes the land lord. The word land lord comes from the land lord. Now when you are a land lord you receive rent and for that you get certain privileges. So here is what they had to pay. We shall receive yearly a thousand marks sterling, namely at the Feast of St. Michael, etc., and then all these other fees that they had to pay, saving to us and to our heirs our right, liberties, and regalia. So our crown, our pomp, our glory, we have rented back from the Pope for this fee. We bind ourselves and our successors not to act counter to them. And now look carefully. If we or any one of our successors shall presume to attempt this, whosoever he be, unless being duly warned he come to his kingdom and his senses, he shall lose his right to the kingdom. And this charter of our obligation and concession shall always remain firm. So if we break this agreement, we lose the crown forever. Wow. What happened? I'm excited. I want to know. I hope you are. Where did the king sign this? Now please note this. The plot thickens. This comes from the select historical documents of the Middle Ages. I, myself, this is the king, 
bearing witness in the house of the Knights Templars near Dover in the presence of Marcher, Master Archbishop of Dublin, Master J. Bishop of Norwich. And then he goes through the whole list of who there was present. And he put his signature to it. So the crown belongs to Rome, but the king rented it back. Now, did they ever break the agreement? Well, there was a lot of money, a thousand pound a mark sterling, plus the other fees that had to be paid, plus the Peter's penny that had to be paid. Britain groaned under this king. This is where the legends come in of uh, the time of Robin Hood and all of those. Although history has been distorted there. The timing is wrong, but the event is interesting. Well, King John caved under the pressure of his barons who couldn't afford the taxes. And so he signed the Magna Carta on June 15, 1215. And the Magna Carta is a famous document. And in this document, he promised to pay respect to what the barons and the lords of the empire said, more so than what someone else said. And so they refused from then on to pay the thousand marks sterling. What did they do when they refused to pay that? They broke the agreement. King John broke the terms of this charter by signing the Magna Carta in June 15, 1215. Remember the penalty for breaking it? Was the loss of the crown, the right to the kingdom, to the Pope and the Roman Church? It says so quite plainly, to formally and lawfully take the crown from the royal monarch in England by an act of declaration on the August 24, 1215. Pope Innocent annulled the Magna Carta. Later in the year, he placed an interdict prohibition on the entire British Empire. And from that time until today, the English monarchy and the entire British crown belong legally to the Pope. Now, England wasn't always very good to the Pope. And there were things like reformations. And King Henry, who said, blow the Pope, I don't care about him. He had other interests. His was more an uh, androgenic problem than anything else. Well, let's not go into the details of that. Here is the picture of the king signing the Magna Carta, breaking the agreement. Only three of the original clauses on the Magna Carta are still law. All the rest has been rescinded today. Please note what is still law. So this portion is still okay. One defends the freedom and the rights of the English church. Another confirms the liberties and customs of London and the other towns, but the third is the most famous. No free man shall be seized or imprisoned or stripped of his rights or possessions or outlawed or exiled, nor will we proceed with force against him except by the lawful judgment of his equals or by the law of the land. To no one will we sell to do, to no one deny or delay right of justice. It has resonant echoes in the American Bill of Rights and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Everything else has been rescinded. 
So Rome really owns the kingdom. Theirs is the crown. And for the monarchs today to have the crown is actually a pretense. The Templars own the crown. Now who are the modern Templars? Who are the modern Templars? That is the question. The Templars have disappeared. Now, if you, I'm not going to go through my previous lectures where we talk about all the secret societies. You can get them on the DVDs, but I'll just give you a little clue. Here are the Knights Templars. Please note their regalia. Here is a Templar. This is the Templar robe. Notice that he has the sash on the left side with the Templar cross on it. Their main symbol is, of course, the crown with the cross. They have united the power of regalia, of kings, with that of the cross. And they are in control. They control the kings through the Knights Templars. All the Knights Templars' successors. Now, who were the successors? Please note the rope. Look at it carefully. And then let's go to the Catholic Encyclopedia. This comes from the Catholic Encyclopedia. Yeah. Is this the same looking robe? Yes or no? Hospitalers of St. John of Jerusalem, also known as the Knights of Malta. The most important of all the military orders, both of the extent of its area and for its duration. It is said to have existed before the Crusades and is not extinct at the present time. Now, the Knights of Malta, of course, are in cohesion and collusion with the Jesuits. And there were even wars between Jesuits and the Knights of Malta. And the Jesuits, the Black Pope, is actually the controlling power behind the whole scene. But each of these orders are subservient to him. Now, there are Protestant groups today that are pretended Protestant groups, but are actually Knights of Malta. Now, I wonder who would wear a similar robe to that, being subservient only to the Pope, because the Knights of Malta are a military papal order. Oh, fascinating. And there we have our Queen. And she has the regalia of the hospitalers. Now, it's claimed to be the Protestant version. So the Queen meets volunteers from St. John's Ambulance. Her Majesty is sovereign of the Order of St. John. The emblem of the Order of St. John, the English Protestant ecumenical branch of the Order of Malta, which is a Catholic secret society. Now, let's have a look at the Knights of Malta. Here we have the Pope, the present Pope, and the High Commander, the Master of the Order of Malta. He happened to die this year, but Benedict greets the Grand Master of the Order of Malta, Prince Andrew Willoughby Ninian Bertie in the Vatican. Notice that the Prince is subservient to the Pope, and he is the Grand Master. Every knight of Malta is subservient to him. So who's the queen subservient to? Must be subservient to him, who is in turn subservient to the Pope. Now, uh, Prince Andrew, Willoughby Ninian, died in 2008, this very year. And the next one to be appointed is the new Grand Master, 
Rome, 11th April 2008, the recently elected Grand Master of the Order of Malta, His Most Eminent Highness, Matthew Festing, was received this morning in private audience by His Holiness, Pope Benedict. It's interesting that this is a British Grand Master. And if you are a Grand Master in the Knights of Malta, you have to be royalty. You must have a royal title. You must be king. You must be royal. So this man is royalty subject to Rome. Now there are certain orders in Britain, and all of these form different levels of this secret hierarchy, which is by law under the Roman papacy. Now, of course, the Reformation disturbed this for a long time, but the Pope's visit was fascinating. Where did he kneel? At the place where the conflict with Britain started. At the place where Thomas Becket was murdered. When a king decided to suppress the Roman Catholic Church. And the outcome of that was the signing of a document which eventually gave Rome the crown. So when we talk of the crown, it is a ruse to think that the queen has the crown. It is the crown of the Knights Templars. And the knights do homage to the crown. They're not doing homage to the queen. They're doing homage to the Templars, and they're doing homage to the Pope. This is the most noble order of the garter. The queen is sovereign of this order. Five members of the royal family are ladies of the order. So we'll put a pin in the discussion right there. It's a really in-depth breakdown of the history there, and he goes line by line and order by order, and he gets into depth and do, right there he was going to go and touch on the order of the garter and um, break down some of these papal knighthoods that are controlling the scenes, behind the scenes, and it's not something that people discuss a lot or know very much about, and so these are the kind of resources that we, we kind of rely on to make a reference basis for us to discuss this and to understand how these different kinds of things work together, and this is really addressing the, the area of the inner city of London, so how the, the temple church and the crown temple and the temple bar and how all that stuff was set up and goes back to like he said the Magna Carta and the, the authority of the Pope and it's fascinating for us to get a look at the some of the inner workings here and, and the historical background and regarding the city of London there's really a board of situated uh, constituency that really serves the establishment there and serves the crown. And these are guilds, um, the guilds of the mercers and the, the various approved royal guilds that have existed for centuries. And they work around the city of London and operate in, the, in control of the banks. And really this was where we get to the point where we have to understand that, that the crown courts in many situations are beginning to have influence within the EU, within the United Nations, and to they're really trying to erect this system of universal law and this admiralty law, which is the law of the sea, that really begins to become the basis for the military law that we see in our courtrooms with the um, the courts sitting in, instead of civil law or in, in equity, they're really just sitting in admiralty, under admiralty law or maritime law. So in order really to get into some of those discussions, we have to understand and how the, the city of London works. And we're going to just fast forward through this a little bit here. So let's have a look at this honorable order of the Bath. 
It is awarded in recognition of conspicuous service to the crown. Now that sounds so innocuous, but who is the crown? We've studied that now. The crown is the Knights Templar's crown. Because it was offered there in the temple of the Knights Templars. And it belongs to Rome. So all of these are Knights of the Holy Roman Empire. Serving as Knights Templars in either the central or the outer or whatever committee. Fascinating. Knighthood and honors what Americans have been honored by Britain recently. Recent American recipients of honor include former New York Mayor Rudolph Giuliani. That's interesting. Doesn't he speak in Canada a lot? The newspapers have been quite full of him. And film director Steven Spielberg. I wonder what he's doing to further the kingdom of the Templars. The Knights Commander of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, former presidents George Bush, Ronald Reagan, Honorary Knights Grand Cross of the Honorable Order of the Bath, Generals Norman Schwarzkopf, Colin Powell, Honorary Knights Commanders of the Most Honorable Order of the Bath, Caspar Weinberger, Honorary Knight Grand Cross of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, the New York Police Commissioner, Bernard Kinnick, etc., etc., etc. Isn't this interesting? Here are all these knights. And a knight is a military man. And who is he fighting for? And what are we doing in Iraq? And what are we doing here? And what are we doing there? Come on. America is a sovereign, independent nation. A free nation that broke the yoke. And it is the finest Protestant nation that has ever existed. And that is true. And this is where the Protestant bastion of the world came to be situated. But let's look at something which could be considered the greatest, greatest deception of our times. Here is an article written by Michael Edward about the ecclesiastical commonwealth. The Crown Temple by rule of Mystery Babylon. The governmental and judicial systems within the United States of America at both federal and local state levels, is owned by the Crown, which is a private foreign power. Before jumping to conclusions about the Queen of England or the royal families, Britain owning the USA, this is a different Crown and is fully exposed and explained below. So we're not going to go into all this. I can leave this for those who are watching the DVD to pause it and read it for themselves. Now, the legal system, the judiciary of the USA, is controlled by the Crown Temple from the independent and sovereign city of London. In fact, London is the financial hub of the world. It is the city of the Jesuits. Therefore, it is the city of the Templars. The private Federal Reserve System, which issues fiat US federal notes, is financially owned and controlled by the Crown from Switzerland. The home and legal origin of the charters of the United Nations. So the whole of the United Nations is a crown charter. An international monetary fund, the World Trade Organization, and the Bank of International Settlements. It's a real eye-opener to know that the Middle Inn of the Crown Templars has publicly acknowledged that there were at least five Templar bar attorneys under the solemn oath only to the crown 
who signed what was alleged to be an American Declaration of Independence. Now, this is fascinating. This is history. Americans were fooled into believing that the legal crown colonies comprised New England were independent nation states, but they never were nor are today. They were and are still colonies of the Crown Temple through letters, patent, and charters. All of these names are important. Who have no legal authority to be independent from the rule and order of the Crown Temple. Fascinating stuff. So it appears as if there is independence, and really there is none. They're all dependent and subject to the Crown. But not the Crown of Britain, because Britain doesn't own the Crown. A legal state is a crown temple colony to have this declaration recognized by international treaty and law and in order to establish new legal crown entity of the incorporated United States Middle Templar, King George III agreed to the Treaty of Paris, September the 3rd, 1783, between the crown of Great Britain and the said United States. Doesn't belong to Great Britain. The Crown of Great Britain legally was then and now the Crown Temple. This formally gave the international recognition to the corporate United States, the new Crown States. So, very interesting. Little Templar of the King's Court representing the United States, a Crown franchise by signature was John Adams, Esquire, Benjamin Franklin, Esquire, John Jay, Esquire. So the Crown was transferring regality on loan to the crown. And since that day, the rule has been by the crown templars. And that's why they're all of this family. So what is happening in the world and all these votings and all these things really doesn't mean very much. I don't have to go through the whole history. I think uh, you can understand the legal implications. Mine might well call the rule of the world today by many names. You can call it the New World Order if you like. That's what the Bush family favorite is. You can call it the Third Way, as Tony Blair and Bill Clinton called it. You can call it the Illuminates, the Triad, the Triangle, the Trinity, the Masonry, the United Nations, if you like. You can call it the EU. You can call it the US. You can call it whatever you like. They're all crowned. Fascinating. Hmm. Because the Pope created the Order of the Temple Knights, the Grand Wizard of Deception, and established their mighty temple church in the sovereign city of London, it is the Pope and his Roman capitals who control the world. Now, this man seems to know what he's talking about. So the crown, the royals, the church, all the churches in the world, and the nations are subject to Rome. When the Pope went and visited, he showed by kneeling at Thomas Beckett's place, now I have achieved what this war was all about from the beginning. And so this queen has had to come dressed in black, the color of a liege, a subservient one, a vassal. So that goes into a lot of depth there in this particular article, and he does a really good 
job of bringing out all the different references in histo the historical texts and goes back and goes through the entire record and reads all of it into the record. That's why I like to kind of play that uh, and have that recorded on the episode. Just, be, you know, it's a lot of content, but when you put it together in this order, it's going to make a lot of things clear. And as we're moving forward here, we have a lot, a lot of content, a lot of material on the subject, but I really can't get to it all. But I want to play and I want to present in this particular record here, the history of the Washington, D.C., the District, District of Columbia. And we need to go back and take a look at how the capital was moved from Philadelphia and how we arrived at our Constitution in 1789 or so there, and how we arrived at the point where we took John Carroll's farm that he, I'm sure, he donated and made it a private, sovereign territory, a sovereign district, and situated the capital and everything there in it. So let's take a look at the history of the District of Columbia and how it ties back to the city of London and that particular sovereign power structure and that control and just like Dr. Veith or Professor Veith was discussing there, how the, the knights of the papal knights and the orders of the knighthoods are used to maintain the holdings and the authority and the power and the, the organizations and the institutions that are created by the Holy See and that are coming from the Vatican. Their programs are being, like a prism, are being refracted through organizations like the United Nations and their wealth is being used to implement their will through the banks there in London. So without further do let's get really into this discussion about the history of the District of Columbia. Here to uh, Wikipedia, the font of all knowledge, um, and Washington District of Columbia. Where did the name District of Columbia come from? Is the question here. And for the past six, eight months or so, I've been offering uh, every friend I talk to and family one hundred dollars if they could tell me where the District of Columbia name came from or what it is a district of, or why it is named Columbia. So far, I've kept $100 as uh, no one has been able to even come close. The common response has been, to a person almost, I have no idea. Uh, so we see here the U.S. Constitution provided for a federal district under exclusive jurisdiction, jurisdiction meaning whose business, of the Congress, and the district is therefore not part of any U.S. state. Further down, it's created a single municipal government for the remaining portion of the district. Here it says an estimated population in 2014, and then leave it to Wikipedia. It says it's the 22nd most populous city, uh, but right above here it says it's not part of any U.S. state, so a contradiction right there. Uh, the centers for all three branches of federal government in the United States are in the district and they rule our lives, collect from the IRS and whatnot, including the Congress, the President, and the Supreme Court. Now, if the Congress is the only one overseeing, and they are in the District of Columbia in Washington, uh, that means they're not a part of the United States of America, small, uh, big U, small N-I-T-E-D, United States, and I'll get into that in a minute. Washington is home to many national monuments and museums. Uh, city hosts 176 foreign embassies as well as headquarters of many international organizations, trade unions, nonprofit organizations, lobbying groups, and professional associations. Uh, one of the tricks they pull for the national governors of association that's based in Washington, D.C., is all the governors get together and come to a separate city-state called Washington, D.C., and they make all their rules and laws, and they form their lobbyist groups, and then they put on their governor's hats and go back to the United States of America, and they enact their laws in their states. We'll get into that at another time. 
All right, so I want to click over here and give you how, how uh, District of Columbia, Washington got its name. But first, let's talk about uh, what the act provided. Uh, this was the uh, Organic Act of 1871, an act to provide a government for the District of Columbia. Uh, an act to provide a government for the District of Columbia, also known as the Act of 1871. It means that Congress, under no constitutional authority to do so, created a separate form of government for the District of Columbia, which is a 10-square-mile parcel of land, its own city-state. It has its own police force, its own mayor, it has its own tax. It doesn't, it isn't taxed, but it has its own um, constitution uh, that we'll get into at another time. Uh, but basically, it's, it's not beholden to any other city-state, just like the city of London and just like the Vatican. Those are the trilateral city-states that rule all. Um, why would they do that? Let's look at the circumstances. Well, in 1871, it was a vulnerable time in America. Our nation was essentially bankrupt, weakened, and depleted after the aftermath of the Civil War. It was nothing, Civil War was nothing more than a calculated front for some fancy footwork by corporate backroom players. The Congress realized our country was in dire financial straits, so they cut a deal with the bankers. The Rothschilds of London were dipping their fingers in the pie, uh, incurring debt to bankers. Um, a bank will do anything unless it's will not do anything unless it's entirely in their best interest to do so. So they basically went and created this act with the treasonous uh, Congress complicity, and uh, the, uh, what they did in the 1871 it was defaced in the sense of the title was block capitalized and the word for was changed to the word of in the title. So instead of United States for America, it became United States of America, all in capital letters. And it goes on to say here, the United States of America, capital letters, represents a fictitious corporation. Your birth certificate, driver's license, social security number, bank statements are all written in capital letters, which means you have registered, regis means crown, submitted and are applied to a part of the United States of America corporation as a fictitious character. The altered version, the capital letters, the Constitution of the United States of America. It is the corporate constitution. It is not the same document you might think. The corporate constitution operates in an economic capacity to be used to fool the people into thinking it is the same parchment that governs the republic. It is absolutely not. Capitalization, capitalization is an insignificant change. No, not when it's referring to the context of a legal document. Such minor alterations have made major impacts on each subsequent generation born in this country. What the Congress did with the passage of the act was to create an entirely new document, a constitution for the government of the District of Columbia. The kind of government they created was a corporation. The new altered constitution serves as the constitution of a corporation and not that of America. And if you'll remember back in 1999 in the blue dress uh, with Monica Lewinsky, uh, President Clinton, uh, a lawyer, got in front of uh, uh, the, the federal grand jury and argued what the term, it depends on what the word is, is. So you can understand that even small words have great meanings. All right, so going up here to how did District of Columbia get its name, or how did Washington, D.C. get its name? So here we read that the Vatican has been involved. The Jesuit John Carroll was probably the richest man in America in the late 1700s. Carroll allowed funding to construct a D.C., which is nicknamed, quote, Rome on the Potomac. In fact, Wikipedia and the Catholic Encyclopedia confirm Washington, D.C.'s original name as Rome, Maryland. Also, a branch of the Potomac River was called the Tiber, which is named after a river in Rome. This information was written in 1902 edition of the Catholic Encyclopedia on the article on John Carroll. 
The owner of the land used to be Francis Pope. Now we have Pope Francis, a Jesuit from Argentina, uh, who just uh, for the first time in 600 years uh, had a pope step down and he replaced him. Isn't that coincidence? And his priest was Jewet, Jesuit Andrew White. Like Rome, Washington, D.C. has seven hills. Uh, their names are Capitol Hill, Meridian Hill, Floral Hills, Forest Hills, Hillbrook, Hillcrest, and Knox Hill. Is this coincidence? It doesn't look like one to me. Roman Catholic John Carroll suggested that French architect Pierre Charles Lefont, the architect of D.C., a freeborn African-American named Benjamin Bank, Banneker also was part of astronomy and architecture during that time. It is said that Benjamin had a role in his construction, along with Infantant. Uh, it's a fact that Roman Catholic Charles Carroll was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. The Carroll family, who were run by the Pope, plus the Jesuits of Rome, and the Freemasons were key in the American Revolution. In fact, George Washington helped in his Masonic attire, laid the cornerstone to the uh, Capitol building. John Carroll founded Georgetown University in 1789. Daniel Carroll owned land in D.C. Roman Catholic Pierre Lafont was a part of the creation of Washington, D.C. as well. Roman Catholic Constantino Bramidi was the hired painter of occult pictures in the Capitol Dome. So let's go over to here, and this is a wonderful website that we'll get into a lot more in another time. But where did the name Columbia come from? And this site is called uh, USA versus US, and it documents uh, how the two, uh, the republic and the democracy, the corporation of civil law versus the uh, republic that we think we live under, the United States of America, small letters versus the capital letters, the United States of America, compare side by side. And when most people say, well, uh, that's, that's not legal under the Constitution, we don't live under that constitution. We live on this one here on the right side. So Columbia is a name for goddess of the creation, war, and destruction, more known as the goddess of death and pain. Wonderful. She is derived from the imagery of the Samarimus, wife of Nimrod, and queen of Babylon back in the Egyptian days. The statue on the top of the Capitol building called the Statue of Freedom is actually Persephone, meaning she who destroys light. She is the queen of the underworld. She is crowned with pentacles and pentagrams and stars with five points. And over, let's go back quick over here, and you can see where here's Washington, D.C., laid out by Lafont, the Roman Catholic, in shape of the pentagon, pentagram. Um, so it goes on to say, when someone stands on something, it is usually an indication of ownership. This is also why you when you go into court, they say, do you understand? Do you stand under your fictitious name? Therefore, she owns the facility she stands on. Although the dome is on top of the Capitol building, was not finished until 1868. Uh, Columbia and Persephone are seen and other statues around the world. Obelisk, which is also in the city-state of City of London, and also an obelisk in the center of the Vatican in Rome. Again, Egyptians. They actually brought these obelisks, except for the Washington, D.C. one, over from Egypt. Um, now, going down a little further, we see that the Gnostic priesthood includes the Illuminati, Skull and Bone Society, which John Kerry and the Bushes are uh, members of, Knights of Malta, Knights of Columbus, uh, all the secret societies, and then the ones we've, you've probably heard of down here, 
We see the uh, Secret Society of Cecil Rhodes, uh, the Chat that's the, the Rhodes Scholar, Chatham House Crowd, Commonwealth Nations, the Royal Institute of Inter International Affairs, the Trilateral Commission, which uh, um, is run by the Rockefellers, uh, the Bilderberg Group, the Council of Foreign Relations that the Clintons and uh, many, many presidents have belonged to, and the magistrates and bar attorneys. So you have to be a member of this group, the bar attorney, BAR actually stands for British Accredited Registry and is a corporation uh, based in the city of London um, and chartered in Puerto Rico. And we'll get into that at another time. But I just want to keep on this uh, District of Columbia theme. So corporate officers, by this act, we can see um, that it was created to make a corporation, again, United States capital letters versus small capital letters over here. We can see it started with... Uh, Old school, what we thought we had, the Declaration of Independence, Articles of Confederation, Constitution, which were taught in school. But that was changed in 1871 with the Treasonous Congress, creating Washington, D.C. We had the Gettysburg Act in 1864, declaring emergency war powers under the Reconstruction Act. So this push put us in martial law, and some argue we've never been in martial law, out of martial law. <clears throat> in fact, and since 1933, we uh, again declared bankruptcy, and martial law was declared then. So we see a corporation with the legislature was established with all apparatus of a district government created by Legislative Act in 1871. Corporate officers, this is what you do when you have a corporation. You form corporate officers. Uh, by the uh, Act of June 11th, 1878, it provided uh, that the commissioners therein provided should be deemed and taken as officers of such corporation. Uh, United States is the District of Columbia Incorporated. The United States government is a foreign corporation with respect to a state. And here in the United States Code, Title 28, Section 3200 definitions, it states the following. Uh, small caps United States means federal corporation. So they poured over the small United States, which we all think we belong to, and made it into a federal corporation. In order to really get further into this point here about the introduction of the District of Columbia and it being something that was introduced as the holdings of the, Can the, the Carroll family, as far as John Carroll and Daniel Carroll being the Roman Catholic proprietors who owned the, the massive area of acreage and who were connected to the Jesuits and who were the Roman Catholic influence at the signing of the Declaration of Independence. So in order to make that point further, let's listen to your Glisman. The Roman Catholic Church is a state. And this is a quote from Bishop Mandel Creighton from his letters that he wrote. Now, subliminal Rome starts as follows. When a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter announced in his 1992 Time magazine cover story that a conspiracy binding President Ronald Reagan and Pope John Paul II into a quote-unquote secret holy alliance had brought about the demise of communism, at least one reader saw through the hype. Professor A. Carol A. Brown of the University of Massachusetts fired off a letter to Times editors saying, quote, Last week, I taught my students about the separation of church and state. This week, I learned that the Pope is running U.S. foreign policy. No wonder our young people are cynical about American ideals." Unquote. What Brown had learned from Carl Bernstein
Palestine, I had discovered for myself over several years of private investigation. The papacy really does run United States foreign policy, and always has. Yes, Bernstein noted that the leading American players behind the Reagan-Vatican conspiracy, to a man, were, quote-unquote, devout Roman Catholics, namely, for example, we have William Casey as the director of CIA. You have Alexander Haig, who was Secretary of State at that time. Richard Allen, who was a National Security Advisor. And also Judge William Clark, who was also a National Security Advisor. Further on, we found Vernon Walters, Ambassador at Large, and William Wilson, Ambassador to the Vatican State. Now, that's also something probably a lot of people do not know, that William Wilson was an ambassador to the Vatican State because Ronald Reagan reinstalled the um, diplomatic relations with the Vatican, recognizing the Vatican City as a state in itself in 1984, if I'm not mistaken, of the year. And, you know, these uh, diplomatic relations were broken after the assassination of Lincoln when the American people... Uh, learned the involvement of the Roman Catholic Church, or better, the Jesuits, into the involvement of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, and it was only restored in 1984 or something by Ronald Reagan. Just a little insert for me here. So continue reading. But the reporter neglected to mention that the entire Senate Foreign Relations Committee was governed by Roman Catholics as well. Specifically, we have here the senators following. And listen well, listen very close to the names now. Joseph Biden from the Subcommittee on European Affairs. Who is Joseph Biden today, 2015? He is the vice president behind the puppet Obama. Further on, we have John Kerry, and he is today, in 2015, the Secretary of State under puppet President Obama. John Kerry was in that time Senator for Terrorism, Narcotics and International Communications. Further on, we have Paul Sabanis, International Economic Policy, Trade, Oceans and Environment. Daniel P. Moynihan, Near Eastern and South Asian Affairs, and Christopher Dodd for the Western Hemisphere and Peace Corps Affairs. Bernstein would have been wandering off point to list the Roman Catholic leaders of American domestic policy, such as Senate Majority Leader George Mitchell and Speaker of the House Tom Foley. By the way, the Speaker of the House today in 2015 also is a devout Roman Catholic. Consider, the land known today as the District of Columbia bore the name Rome in 1663 property records. And the branch of the Potomac River that bordered Rome on the south was called Tiber. This information was reported in the 1902 edition of the Catholic Encyclopedia's article on Daniel Carroll. So, let me just stop here for a second. What Tupper Saucy states here in his book is not a conspiracy theory, is not something that he just made out of the blue. This is Roman Catholic Encyclopedia stated itself. Antichrist system. It
it gives so much information away of who the Antichrist is and what they really are, what the Roman Catholic Church really is, what the so-called Pontifex Maximus, the Pope, really is. They give that all away in their own writing and you can look that up. But of course, we are talking about here uh, of the information reported in the 1902 edition of the Catholic Encyclopedia on the article on Daniel Carroll. And you have to make sure to get these older editions because, and this is what I continue reading now, the article specifically declaring itself of interest to Catholics in the 1902 edition was deleted from the new Catholic Encyclopedia in 1967. Interesting, just when Vatican II finished in 1965, they brought out a new Catholic Encyclopedia. That is how these governing bodies, the hidden hand, are steering history teaching because they delete the things from history that they do not want you to know. Other facts were reported in 1902 and also deleted from 1967. For example, when Congress met in Washington for the first time in November 1800, the only two really comfortable and imposing houses within the bounds of the city belonged to Roman Catholics. One was Washington's first mayor, Robert Brent. The other was Brent's brother-in-law, Notley Young. And Notley Young was a Jesuit priest. Daniel Carroll was a Roman Catholic congressman from Maryland who signed two of America's fundamental documents, the Articles of Confederation and the United States Constitution. Carroll was a direct descendant of the Calverts, a Catholic family to whom King Charles I of England had granted Maryland as a feudal barony. Carroll had received his education at St. Omer's Jesuit College in Flanders. That's, by the way, not so far from where I live, because I also live in Flanders. Where young English-speaking Catholics were trained in a variety of guerrilla techniques for advancing the cause of Roman Catholicism among hostile Protestants. In 1790, President George Washington, a Protestant appointed Congressman Carroll to head a commission of three men to select land for the federal city, called for in the Constitution. Of all places, the commission chose Rome, which at the time consisted of four farms, one of which belonged to Daniel Carroll. It was upon Carroll's farm that the new government chose to erect its most important building, the Capitol. The American Capitol abounds with clues of its Roman origins. Freedom, the Roman goddess whose statue crowns the dome, was created in Rome at the studio of American sculptor Thomas Crawford. We find a whole pantheon of Rome, the Roman deities in the great fresco covering the dome's interior rotunda. Well, that's exactly what I just told you a few minutes ago. And who were these Roman deities? Persephone, Ceres, Freedom, Vulcan, Mercury, even a deified George Washington, like I told you. These figures were the creation of Vatican artist Constantino Brumidi. The fact that the National State House evolved as a 
capital bespeaks Roman influence. No building can rightly be called a capital unless it's a temple of Jupiter, the great father god of Rome who ruled heaven with his thunderbolts and nourished the earth with his fertilizing rains. It was a capitolium. It belonged to Jupiter and his priests. Now, let me just insert this. When you go to the Vatican today, St. Peter's Cathedral, it is exactly the same thing. It also is a temple of Jupiter. And when you go in there and you have the so-called statue of Peter in there, that is not Peter, but that is just named Peter. That is a statue of Jupiter. Go today into a court, and then you will see outside, of course, Justicia with her sword and Libera blindfolded holding the scales. Did you know that these were Roman goddesses? And what do Roman goddesses have to do in any Protestant country? In a court where you go and you think that you will get justice? What justice do you get from a Roman pagan system? What justice can you expect from Babylon? By the 4th century, one half of the lands and one fourth of the population of the Roman Empire were owned by the priests. When the Emperor Constantine and his Senate formally adopted Christianity as the Empire's official religion, the exercise was more of a merger or acquisition than a revolution. The wealth of the priests merely became the immediate possessions of the Christian churches, and the priests merely declared themselves Christians. Government continued without interruption. The pagan gods and goddesses were artfully outfitted with names appropriate to Christianity. The sign over the pantheon indicating to the fertility goddess Cybele and all the gods was rewritten to, quote, to Mary and all the saints, unquote. The temple of Apollo became the church of St. Apollinaris. The temple of Mars was reconsecrated church of Santa Martina with the inscription Mars hence ejected Martina martyred maid claims now the worship which to him was paid. These are actually two very interesting quotes that fall right into the subject that we are just talking about. And the first quote comes from A.C. Flick from his book The Rise of the Medieval Church, 1909 edition, page 148. Quote, the mighty Catholic Church was little more than the Roman Empire baptized. Unquote. And the second quote from Stanley's History, page 4. Quote, the popes filled the place of the vacant emperors at Rome, inheriting their power, their prestige, and their titles from paganism. So, continue reading now. Hallowed icons of Apollo were identified as Jesus, and the crosses of Bacchus and Tammuz were accepted as the official symbol of the crucifixion. Pope Leo I decreed that, quote, St. Peter and St. St. Paul have replaced Romulus and Remus as Rome's protecting patrons, end quote. Pagan feasts, too, were Christianized. December 25th, the celebrated birthday of a number of gods, among them Saturn, Jupiter, Tammuz, Bacchus, Osiris, and Mithras, was claimed to have been that of Jesus as well. And the traditional Saturnalia, season of drunken merriment and gift-giving 
and evolved into Christmas gift giving. Yeah, Christmas today is nothing more than just spending money, you know, and that's what they all want to do to you. Continue reading now. Bacchus was popular in ancient France under his Greek name Dionysus, or as the French rendered it, Denis. Look, Denise. His feast, the Festum Dionysi, was held every seventh day of October at the end of the vintage season. After two days of wild partying, another feast was held, the Festum Dionysi Eleutriere Rusticum or meaning the country festival of Mary Dionysus. The papacy cleverly thought the worshippers of Dionysus into its jurisdiction by transforming the words Dionysus, Bacchus, Eleutherae and Rusticum into a group of Christian martyrs. October 7th was entered on the liturgical calendar as the feast day of St. Bacchus the Martyr, while October 9th was instituted as festival of St. Denis and of his companions St. Eleutheri and St. Rustic. The Catholic Almanac of 1992 sustains the fabrication by designating October 9th as the feast days of Denis has been hijacked from the beginning, as F. Tapasorsi said, and I think the more we get into this book, the more that this is clear to you, that the lay people, the normal people on the streets, have been betrayed from the beginning. You thought that you were fighting about tea and taxes, and actually, you were not. Washington, D.C. was founded on a river that is now called Potomac, that was then called Tiber, of a city that was then called in 1663 Rome, and is now called Washington, D.C. Just think about these little things. Try to get more educated in your own history. There's more of the backstory to the District of Columbia there in the federal city. And we have to go ahead and listen to James Montgomery right now. He's going to break down some of this back, the back history and introduce us to the really, the, the kind of the plot as it sets and the storyline that is really going to begin to emerge here as we go through. So we've, we've, we've spent a lot, a lot of time on this episode. We've, we've gone long and we worked through a lot of material. So let me just get this last part in here for, for this full compilation. And so once again, this is James Montgomery and Visigoth. All but all began uh, back in 1213, the charter 1213 on the, anyone out there is uh, familiar with that. It, this information is not taught in school, but it does exist. It's nothing that uh, was created by us. And uh, this is where uh, King John uh, had been admonished by the Pope uh, for his uh, actions involving his clergy, uh, that the uh, Pope excommunicated King John in order to receive the uh, blessing again from the Pope because his people were, were up in arms because you have to understand the power that the Catholic Church had over uh, not only kings but the, the people of the nation. Uh, in regards to their relationship, you know, with God Almighty. Mm -hmm. 
pool and all that took place uh, in order to get in the good graces of the Pope again, uh, the king had to cede over everything that he held title to. you got to keep in mind, he holds everything in a loyal, uh, absolute ownership. And he ceded those properties and people, everything that he owned, uh, over to the Pope. And then that land and the uh, holdings of the king were ceded back to him as a lesser title to oversee for the Pope. And this occurred in 1203, did you say? That's 1213. Okay. Uh, took place, and I actually have letters uh, in my book uh, that were communications between King John and the Pope in regards to setting up this uh, arrangement at where this was to be done. And so two years later is when you had the Magna Carta. And, uh, you know, we've always heard for years and years, you know, the, the patriots in this uh, nation give lip service to the Magna Carta when they don't realize the whole story uh, as to what took place uh, just a few months after the Magna Carta uh, had been written and uh, the king swore, you know, an oath to the barons that... Uh, and signed a document that in August 24th of that same year, uh, the Pope ruled that the Magna Carta was null and void. And, of course, you would have to ask yourself, well, why in the world would, you know, would he have the authority or even the, uh, the semblance to, to make such a declaration? And the reason is because he was a silent third party. Uh, because of what took place in 1213, and most people are not aware of that. And the Magna Carta was again brought forth in 1225 uh, that had a number of its uh, paragraphs have been removed uh, by the Pope with, and with the King at that time. And uh, they went across again the, uh, the Pope's approval disapproval and because of the taxation issues it wasn't uh, accepted by the, the parliament at that time and in 1297 you see the Magna Carta brought up yet again uh, in its uh, modified form not as the same document that it was in 1215 and again you see uh, I believe it was 1305 uh, the Pope at that time ruled that document null and lord and uh, said that King Edward for that time was not to be held uh, uh, liable for anything that he did for a son. Uh, James, let me ask you, uh, was the Magna Carta ever a legitimate document and legitimate in the sense that that it, what it um, dictated uh, ever came true or, or uh, was it right from the get-go, you know, a failed document? It was failed in the sense... Uh, for two reasons. Number one, by the way, it was done. Uh, just as basic law, you can't be uh, compelled by force and duress to sign any sort of a document. Uh, now, in the minds of the barons, I'm sure it was legitimate. Uh, the king did capitulate and sign that document rather than have his head cut off. Uh, but as a matter of you know, the rule of law contracts, that was not a valid document. And the Pope ruled it as such in, uh, again, August 24th of uh, 1215. Yeah, because uh, what, uh, why the Pope did that is I'm reading now on page 52 of the National Canon Law of the United States. 
in the sovereign pontiff annul all national canon law? The answer is, we reply in the affirmative. For national canon law, whether originating in customs, statutes, privileges, or concordance, depends upon the express or tacit sanction of the Pope. And then going over to Article 2, it says the American canon law of the national canon law of the United States. And they ask what is meant by the American canon law. And they go into it and they say, we say our sanction were tolerated by the Roman pontiff, for as was seen, no national law can become legitimate except by the least of the tacit or legal consent of the Pope. Hence, the just national or the exceptional ecclesiastical laws prevalent to the United States may be abolished at any time by the sovereign pontiff. That is because of the treaty that was actually signed and sealed April 21st on 1214. And this is what the patriots and most attorneys have no concept. So in a way, is it true that the Magna Carta really weren't worth the paper they were written on to a certain extent. Exactly, exactly. Because when they held the sword to King John's throat, that was the duress that James was talking about in uh, August when the papal bull came out denouncing the uh, Magna Carta. Now, and the, the book that most people might be able to buy today it does have that specifically in, printed in the book, is the Federal Reserve Conspiracy and Rockefeller, their gold corner by Emmanuel M. Josephson. And it was in 1968 when it was printed. Uh, would you just also give me the title of um, the full title of the book you had just mentioned about um, ecclesiastical law? Okay, it is uh, Elements of Ecclesiastical Law by uh, S.B. Smith, Volume 1. There's three volumes. And I'll read the cover page. <clears throat> the latest decisions of the sacred congregations of cardinals adapted especially to the discipline of the church of the United in the United States, and this is the ninth edition, and it's printed by the Benjinger brothers in New York, Cincinnati, and Chicago, and it was the printing for the Holy See, eighteen ninety three. You know, um, that's interesting, by the way, too, because as I think I might have told you, uh, we got a. Uh, uh, some images were re reproduced from a newspaper at that time, probably around 1892, called the Patriotic American. It carried a papal bull from Leo. And yes, in it, 
Yeah. He, he uh, did come over here, and he chewed out the United States for not following his dictates. And I do have a copy of that paper, and I tried to scan it and put it on my computer. But, you know, you can't scan a whole newspaper. No, it's true. In, in fact, I had, I had to transpose the papal bull uh, just so I could pass it around. But in that, he, he says, you know, I'm the vicar of Christ, and it all belongs to me. Right. Uh, and then he also uh, warned heretics, which translated means anybody who wasn't Romanist, uh, that this would be a good time for you to come into the fold or risk whatever happens to you for being heretical. Right. Uh, very, very not spiritual type words, I'd say. No, no. And, and, you know, the funny part, not really funny, but the part about it that people don't realize is the Pope is a fraud. He is not the Vicar of Christ because back in 79 A.D., St. Linus was the first pope that self-appointed himself as the Vicar of Christ. And it's been carried through so that they have so much power today that people still believe that there is a vicar of Christ, and it is not. So that alone would destroy, once it is put in people's mind, that there is no pontiff, there is no pope, who is a vicar of Christ. It seemed to me, although the Vatican was strong at times, and at other times kind of on the run, and we had the dual papacy there for a while, yeah, France. but it would seem to me that right around the 1820s, when the Treaty of Verona came out, it was on the back of the fact that the Jesuits had already wrested control from whatever power sources were there, perhaps the Pope, and that from that point on, the Jesuits pretty much ran the, ran the show from behind the Vatican doors. Right. Uh, that was 1541, when De Loyola became the first black pope, because he was actually the police of the Vatican. Yeah, the enforcement arm of the Vatican. Right. Now, so I'm assuming, and maybe I'm wrong, but around the Treaty of Verona, again, I think it was 1822, it seems from that point on, though that there was some infighting going on between the Jesuits and others, that from that period on, they were solidified, it was done, and they only grew stronger. Right. Uh, they continued on to just interject uh, uh, what was done during that treaty. I mean, it was this huge involvement of Jesuits and uh, other states, not only papal states, but uh, it was their aim to destroy any democracy. Uh, they considered that an enemy of the uh, Pope, and uh, that was what they set out to do. And you can see this all the way up in the... Uh, course, the Civil War, you know, when uh, Lincoln was assassinated, uh, most people are taught that, uh, you know, John Wilkes Booth, and that's all you ever hear. Uh, you never hear the main conspirators. He's a Jesuit. Yeah. <laughs> you had John Surratt, Mary Surratt. Mary Surratt, she was one of the ones that was hung on the gallows. But John Surratt, uh, when after they had succeeded in killing Lincoln, he escaped up through Canada, and the next time that he was found, he was at the Vatican and provided protection by the Pope, and the United States finally worked out a deal with the Pope to bring him back for trial. Of course, it was just a show trial when he came back. The audience was full of Jesuits, intimidated the juries, and he lived the remainder of his life in New York. 
1900s. Just to fill in, yes, I, I agree with you completely. He went over and was in the Vatican Guard, of all things. Yeah. And it's true. They took, And in fact, uh, Wilcox, in his book, Transformation of the Republic, had an image of a newspaper where it's uh, a, a United States daily that said, if Surratt's not returned, the United States is breaking off diplomatic relations with the Vatican. Now, understand that diplomatic because they are a nation state as well. Sure. And what happened was they, they sent Surratt off and they gave him one more chance. I, I don't know if you've heard about this, but he escapes in Alexandria and is caught and then brought back. I'm surprised. And what also is interesting is that his, I guess, handler was, was um, the priest Wiggett out of Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they had the trial in Georgetown, which is a hotbed of Jesuitical uh, uh, behavior, and it ended in a hung trial, right. a hung jury, so he never got convicted. But what's really interesting also is he wrote his memoirs, and the story goes that Surratt was so depressed that nobody wanted to publish them that he burnt them. Uh, personally, I'm not believing that. Right. I just find it interesting that there was such an inactivity, uh, and as you said also, that, that the original 13th. Now, is it true that the original 13th had to do with the... Um, I don't know, Billy. Yeah, I don't know, Billy, right. I, I do have a copy that I scanned of that book, of the original 13th. That's the only reason why I got it. And see, that amendment continued to be printed by states after the Civil War. I think the last to have was around 1872 in Colorado. Now, that was a warning or a, a proscription that no one bearing a title, which would be Esquire, Esquire, right. um, or just a plain a knighthood, right, sir? Right. Now, here's why. Let's go back to 1355. In 1355, the Vatican took all the Knights Templars and made them attorneys. Now, here is what it is. Do you know the definition of a bar? And I do have it from Charles Warren's book on the history of the American bar. The bar, the name bar, the word bar, B-A-R, means not like a lot of patriots say, British accredited, regency, whatever. In Charles Warren's book, he says a bar is one attorney. One attorney. That's it. They call them bars. So naturally, if you have a bar association, that's an attorney association, right? People cannot understand this, and that's why they take an oath to support the Pope in whatever they do. Now, today's people, new attorneys, have no clue that they have a silent oath that they take to protect the Pope's corporation. Well, that's why you normally, uh, they do not want unlicensed individuals. You know, coming before the court because you can damage the decorum, so to speak, of the court. Uh, you're not going to abide by the same rules uh, that the licensed attorney is sworn oath to follow and uh, runs the risk of being disbarred if he you know, goes against those rules. Now, let me ask you this. 
not only the Constitution, but prior to that, the whole code of American civil law, are they not both predicated on, one, the English code of law, and secondly, and we talked about this years ago, I man, uh, should people re uh, take a look at the book by Stevens, uh, Sources of the Constitution? Yeah, and and I can also go and and uh, get the uh, book, the myth and the reality uh, that I published. Uh, that's the last one, and it goes through everything that the Pope installs every CEO of this corporation called the United States. The vote counts for nothing. Neither is the Electoral College putting them into place. But it stands to reason, if you have a corporation and you own it, you're going to make sure that the CEO follows your rules. You're probably aware of the Temple in London. Yes. Uh, just to give you a brief uh, history to show you how it uh, was fashioned as a religion, uh, the people that maintained that temple at first were not nice Templars. And they were given grants of power to where they uh, weren't subservient to the king in any way. Of course, you know the uh, history, I'm sure, you know, during the Middle Ages where they were uh, said to have been doing you know, things against the church and they were all burned to stay or uh, had a terrible demise, let's just put it that way. And those that took their place were the Knights Hospitallers, and that's where we get our doctors, this is the hospitals. Uh, that, that old side of the present day, uh, you know, this left over from the Knights Hospitallers, well, they were treated the same way over a period of time once they became powerful by the Pope and done away with. And the people that took over their position were lawyers in the temple, and that's where they first uh, got their hooks into the crown, where they could uh, perform as they chose and, and operate with impunity. And you had a uh, middle temple, temple, an outer temple, and the, uh, there were three sides that these uh, lawyers operated in, and the further you went out of the temple, just like if the masonry, the more knowledge that you had to operate with. So now, since you've listened to this episode, you have a lot more information for you to operate with, a lot more light on your path, and with this new understanding, this new lexicon of history, this new kind of comprehension that we can, an insight we can offer, a new level of pedagogic understanding, a new level of enlightenment, and with this new kind of um, nomenclature that we've um, we've expanded here in this episode, we're going to listen to a really interesting and brief analysis by Alan Lamont, who will really wrap it up. There's so many front organizations. Now, the Templars are the crown. Let me explain that. They are the crown. You have three cities that govern the art. I reveal that in a lot of my work. You have the Vatican City State, which is the crown corporation of the Vatican. Then you have the District of Columbia in Washington, D.C. That governs America. It's a sovereign city state separate from the Constitution and the Congress and the governors and the presidents is separate from any form of government in America. That's Templar Crown territory. Then you have London. You have the Crown Inner City Corporation of London ruled by the Temple Bar. Of course, 
from the Temple Church territory of the inner city of London. That's the structure here. But when you look at Britain, Britain is still an empire. It's not a commonwealth. Uh, look at this picture here of the flag of Great Britain. Templar Red Cross. And it fits exactly into the Babylonian sun wheel. St. Peter's Square at the Vatican, around the obelisk of Nimrod. You'll notice that the vast majority of these Commonwealth nations that were colonised by the British Empire have Templar flags. You say, well, that's because they were under the sovereignty of uh, the monarchy of Britain. Not so, because it covers the entire area of Europe. You know, the vast majority that were not under the power of the crown have also Templar crosses. The Templars controlled the whole civil war in America. When you understand the Templars of the Jesuits, it makes sense. Behind the monarchy, you have the inner city corporation of London. And that is ruled over by the Jesuit provincials, not the Lord Mayor. There's two Lord Mayors. There's the Lord Mayor, obviously, at the moment, you know, Boris Johnson. Uh, and then you have the Mayor of the Inner City Corporation of London. He doesn't control it. He just is an overseer and administrator of all of these liberal companies and all of these guilds and all of these Masonic groups that are at the top. And the reason why they're created is really a firewall. It's just to make sure that no one can you know, have any power because they are the ones that appoint the leaders in Parliament from various universities called the London School of Economics. They really oversee the political system in London itself. Uh, Westminster is a front. It's got no power. It makes no decisions whatsoever. It's the Jesuit provincials that govern the inner city corporation of London. They're the ones that have the power. You have the same thing in America, obviously. It's different in Washington. But you have the Jesuits of Rome and the District of Columbia is in Maryland, you know. That's right. Around the area of Jesuit Georgetown University. And so the Jesuits control the CFR. Uh, you have, uh, you do have shadow governments in every nation. For instance, uh, let me go back to America very quick. You have the Royal Institute of International Affairs. Okay, that is the government. That's the name for the British government, the Royal Institute of International Affairs. But of course, the royal monarchy, the bloodline, the Saxe Coburg British bloodline, does not control the Royal Institute of International Affairs from Chapman House. It's the Jesuit provincial. That's his government. That's the government of the United States. Not Westminster, not the House of Lords, and certainly not any cabinet of any puppet prime minister in Great Britain. Next we have America, you have the Council of Foreign Relations, that's the government, that's the shadow government, that's the real government of the United States government. And they just bring their high masons and their Jesuit alumni into public office to be vice president, president. Uh, really, they're just fronts, really, for the Jesuit government. Really. But I understand the Templars. Understand, don't get confused with that, just understand that they are nice Templars. That's who runs the world, that's who's in control. Very clearly. I mean, all you have to do is look at pictures of the, the coinage of the Knights Templar. I'll put a picture on here so you can see this. 
And, you know, you see that they have the skill, and you see that even Francis, you know, Borgia, and even, uh, you know, Ignatius Loyola are holding the skull. You see it in Nazi Germany, you see it in the skull and bones in Yale, you see it all across the earth, really. The skull is a symbol for the Templars. It's a symbol of revenge, it's a symbol of revenge, that's what it is. You know, it's a vendetta, you know, it's a symbol of revenge. They will destroy every government, they will destroy all resistance. They will be masters, they will rule over the world. So when they're holding that skull, they're really portraying, you know, their vengeance. But anyway, it's a sign of the Templars, that's why you see it on the Jesuit coins. You also have the IHS symbol on the Jesuit coins, and, uh, you know, obviously on the Templar coins. You see it there, long before the creation of the Jesuit order. Because the Templars are really the ones that are in control. And they do work with uh, the Catholic monarchies. This is called the Holy Alliance. They've, they've made that agreement. They can't resist the power of the Jesuits. They'll be assassinated, they're overthrown, the bloodlines will be wiped out. That's the way it is. <laughs> History's proved that. History's proved that. And the Jesuits don't serve Rome. They don't serve the Pope. That was just diversion in order to receive the papal bull. <laughs> for the creation of the Society of Jesus. We see from the very beginning, the Jesuits, uh, you know, their intrigue and the espionage really to infiltrate the Vatican, control the Cardinals. But of course, the papal bloodlines are working with the Jesuits. They have control over the conclave and, you know, they would elect the popes of Rome and any that would defy them, they were actually removed from Rome, imprisoned or just poisoned, really. So, you know, the conspiracy goes back over a thousand years. People think the Vatican was destroyed a couple hundred years ago. No, certainly not. Certainly not. There was always infiltration there by the papal bloodlines. There was always infiltration. But regarding the papacy, you see, if you destroy the Vatican, they all lose their power. The papal bloodlines have no power. That's right, they have no power. They receive the power through the, the Vatican. That's the truth. The Vatican knighthoods would lose their power. You see? because they hide under the cover of Christianity. The Templars would have lost their power, so what they did is went underground and thought, okay, you know, payback's coming. You know, we'll destroy the Vatican. We'll destroy your, uh, you know, royal bloodlines. In fact, we'll wipe out your bloodlines and we will raise up and we will create the Society of Jesus. Call the Society of Jesus. The company, Campania, Knights of the Virgin, and we will infiltrate the Vatican, and then we will take over the popes, and then we will take over the cardinals, and then we will wage a war of revenge against all the monarchies and governments that have sought to destroy us. Once they've done that, then they really create the Illuminati to infiltrate all the governments across the entire earth, and then to bring their counter-reformation against all Protestants and Jews, ultimately bringing a world war that will result in the building of the third rebuilt Jewish temple. You see, it's Vatican Knights that control the world. It's the Vatican Knighthoods. Pope Benedict was a Knight of Malta. You know, look at all the popes over the last, you know, 50, 60 years. They've all been high masons or Knights of Malta. That's all they are. Trained by the Templars, trained by the Jesuits. Same with the Cardinals. They're all Vatican Knights. All you have to do is look at King John Carlos of Spain. And, you know, he is a equestrian order. He's a High Templar, he's a Knight of Malta, he's an Order of the Garter, <laughs> he's an Order of the Golden Fleece, you see. They're all Vatican Knights. America is, is you know, under the 
the power of the crown in the sense that you see the presidents go to Queen Elizabeth, for instance, uh, Herbert Walker Bush was knighted into the Order of the Bath, to the Order of Chivalry under the British Empire. And so was uh, Reagan. You see, you know, Nelson Mandela, as soon as he was released from prison, he went to uh, the British Crown, of course, and was knighted into the Knights of Malta because the Queen is a dame of the Knight of Malta. And Knights of St. John, Knights of Jerusalem. We see Mugabe, we see all of these leaders are Vatican Knights or High Jesuits. Let me just say, within the Templar organization, <laughs> there's not many that know this truth because you have a Masonic Templar organization. Let me explain what I'm really saying, okay? Within Masonry, you have many High Knight Templars, but they don't understand that literally the Templars do control Masonry. They still exist. They control the Jesuits. The Jesuits wrote the high degrees. The Jesuits are really just the front for the Templars and so on and so on. Deep conspiracy, and most Masons won't know this. It's the truth, you know. It's the same with the Knights of Columbus. It's the same with the Knights of Malta. You know, even the Jesuit order, you know, the vast majority of Jesuits that, you know, staff the university is an alumni structure. They don't understand the Templars are the Jesuits. <laughs> That's for those at the high levels of the Jesuit Curie in Rome, from the Church of the Jesuit. They know that. And the provincials, of course, that govern the cardinals and bishops. So there's not many people that are privy to this information. And uh, there's not many people bringing it out. But it's the truth. That's going to be a wrap on our discussion. And uh, we already went way over in this episode. And we will be back to, to go deeper into this whole issue and discuss more. Um, we, we were discussing the Worshipful Company of Mercers and the other ver various guilds that serve the inner city of London there and the connection between Washington, D.C. and the city of London, the square mile and the banking district there, and also the ties with the Vatican and the power structure of these nested cities, these the Imperium within Imperio, the empire of the city, and you can see that these the interactivity between the power structure that existed for, for many thousands of years there in Rome and how it set itself up there in an ancient fort there in Londinium and set up the independence and the sovereign state of London and long before England was actually a nation and you actually have the ties with the new world there in America as the influence of the city of London the, and it's the outreach of the power of Rome as it reaches into the new world and we have this all these maps and all the information all the detailed information all the links are all going to be attached to the podcast so you can see the evidence for yourself look at all the articles and some of the articles and the points and references we used in this episode are our videos that are very elaborate they're, they're, they're studious they go back for hours and go back for many centuries in history to establish all this we're looking at the banking power of Macau there that was the British bank holdings that um, were influential there in the Far East and we looked at Francis Xavier who was the Jesuit who punctured the inner culture and this the uh, this subculture of Chinese society and exploited it and we looked at the, the power of skull and bones and the East India, East India Trading Company that used its powerful navy to
to ultimately destroy the sovereignty of the Chinese and to force them to bring in tons and tons of opium and addict their people with this uh, terrible addiction. The and um, ultimately the the Knights of Malta and the Vatican through London have been really running and controlling China and uh, the the sudden emergence of this virulent. virulent uh, CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, was introduced there in 1949, and that was uh, a direct result of all the influence that that the English have had in China for centuries, and so they've been built into this godless system war machine. That's what we're seeing there in China, and it's being built up to be used against us here in the West and you can see that the connections with the Vatican and their Concordat and um, there's no way around it guys we're going to have to face this entire monstrous structure and uh, we'll do our best here at Looking Glass Forum to bring more of this out